Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening, David. How you doing? Oh, I thought you were thanking me for listening. I am. Uh, I don't. <laughs> you I, know what? Even when we're recording, that is true. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, anyway, so how am I doing? I'm, I'm befuddled. Befuddled? I'm, I'm confounded. Okay. Because it's a, when I go to a fast food restaurant chain... Mm. And I ordered a medium soda. Yeah. It's a shot in the dark as to what I'm going to get. Yeah. There needs to be some standardization so that I'm not accidentally buying whatever this, the 32 ounces of cherry Coke at Del Taco. When, when I think of a medium, I think of what was a medium when I was a kid, which is still pretty much what a medium is now at McDonald's. They didn't change. Everybody else has, has like, so either McDonald's needs to give in, which mm. I would rather they didn't do, yeah. or everyone else needs to scale back and call this monster cherry Coke what it is, which is a large cherry Coke. Yeah, that looks like a large. At thing. least a large. But this is a medium. It's ridiculous. It, like the, the idea is it, it, it appears to be that most <laughs> at most fast food chains, a, it's not a large if there's the possibility of it falling out of your hand, if you're holding it one handed, like, (laughs) like obviously you can't get your hand around this, but you've got a good grip on it. It's not going anywhere. Right. But there have been some, like I've gotten a large at Wendy's. I'm like, this is calm. This is silly. It does. It looks like it could fall out of my hand. It looks like a carrot top prop. (laughs) These sodas. (laughs) (laughs) They're so big and no one needs that much soda. Yeah. It's uh, at least like, uh, seven 11 has just, they didn't change what a gulp and a big gulp were. They mm-hmm. just keep adding new, like, superlatives. Yeah. You know, like, uh, mega gulp. I don't even know what there they are, because I never get anything bigger than a big gulp at 7-Eleven anyway. Megalo but, gulp. But, but, like, big gulp. Yeah. Which is, like, about this size, is, like, only the second in the... Uh, sure, <laughs> in, yeah, The yeah. second of, like, five or six sizes at 7-Eleven. But uh, at least I still, the big gulp is still a big gulp. Here's something that I have uh, discovered recently that I find terrifying and insidious. Uh, I'm not, like, a lot of people are bothered by the, all the, just the giant sizes and stuff. And I'm not necessarily, if they're, you know, labeled correctly. Yeah, exactly. Um, But what does get me is, uh, Jen and I were driving home from the Dodgers game, and she was thirsty, so we pulled into a McDonald's to get a Sprite. And so uh, I said, medium Sprite, and then Jen said, oh, actually, and they said, okay, it's going to be 109. And I said, okay. And then Jen said, oh, you know, actually, let's, let, I'll get a large. So I said, okay, large, and they said 109. I was like, I don't think they heard me. So then I pulled around. They gave me, they gave me a large. And they said 109. And I said, oh, is that, um, are you charging me medium prices? And they said, they're all the same price. You didn't see the sign, I take it. I did not see the sign. Any size, $1. Yeah, I didn't see that. I don't know if if that's new or new-ish. It's new-ish. But, like, that's really, like... (laughs) I, I I don't get angry at like the obesity of people, but when they're all the same size, yeah. what are you not going to get the large? Like yeah, I, I am trying to tr- be better about that sort of thing. Cause for a while, like 
Burger King would have like yeah. two for one chicken sandwiches. And yeah. it's like, I don't need two chicken sandwiches. One is what I need. It's what I went in with. But yeah. as soon as I see the sign where I'm told you get another one for, you know, it's buy one get one free. I'm like, yeah. fuck yeah, give me two chicken yeah, sandwiches. What am I, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> what am I going to leave this chicken sandwich <laughs> laying on the table? Yeah. They're like, look, we, ha- we legally, we have to give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I'll, I'll go like when I get like popcorn and a Coke at a movie theater, like if I get a, I just want a medium and a medium. That's what I want. And they're like, you know, for a dollar twenty-five more, you get a large and a large. I'm like, what are you doing to me? Come on, dollar <laughs> twenty-five in mo- like in movie prices. That's nothing. Uh, yeah. So I, what I have to do it. And only recently have I been like, no, I know it's a bad value. It's not about the money, but it's about st- what I need. Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah. I've been holding off, sticking to those mediums. Now you guys heard a voice, the listeners. Yes, that's a voice true. spoke up that has not been introduced, which is perfectly okay. Where? Who? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, this is a very special episode. I mean, not like Blossom style, like no one's going to like, you know, attempt suicide or whatever. You don't know. Um, I guess that's true. <laughs> this episode could be pretty long. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, we have a guest to help us uh, what we're, do what we're going to do, which of course is, a, you know, <laughs> you can't just read the episode title. I have to wait to announce what the topic is till after I say the yeah. catchphrase. Those are the rules. Uh, and the world will fall apart if I don't follow them. Um, but joining us for our very special episode, uh, we're always happy to have him. And I know that you, the listener, is always happy when we have him. Our uh, Battleship Pretensions resident musicologist, West Anthony. Greetings, culture lovers. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Uh, thank you very much for having me back on the show. Uh, nice to talk to you all out there in podcast land. Absolutely. Uh, so... I feel like should we just get right into I feel it? Like we gotta we catch up with West a little bit. All right, West. Yeah, we, yeah, we do have a lot to go to get yeah. through. So, real quick, how you doing? Uh, all right, everything's going okay. Have I you guess. seen any good movies lately? Uh, you know, I, it's funny. I just watched because it, it, it was just av- made available yesterday the uh, the Steve Jobs documentary that uh, Alex Gibney did, you which know, David yeah. just saw. Yeah, I saw that too. Because he apparently won't stop making documentaries. I think that's the third one he put out this week. <laughs> I, but where did you see it? At home. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and uh uh yeah it's i i liked it a lot if only because that guy's story really did need a little course correction uh-huh there's there's way too much lionizing of steve jobs i feel i've known for some time even before he cacked it that uh, he had you know kind of a penchant for jerculence and now you know finally somebody's gonna try and set the record straight about some of that guy's shenanigans didn't it cut but it i almost got the impression that it's like that's not even what Alex Gibney necessarily set out to do. Like he set out to make a documentary about Steve Jobs, learned about him, and was like, "Fuck this guy," and then like started to, oh like, yeah, it sort of changed course and like it really, really goes after. Yeah, it's kind of like the same thing that happened with the, uh, the his Lance Armstrong documentary. You know, oh, he was right. all set to go, "Hey, this Lance Armstrong guy, he's pretty awesome," and then it's like, "Wait, what? Oh no, <laughs> oh no, he's terrible." Well, I, I guess people got to know. So and I guess here he, it is. He did this. He did a similar thing with Julian Assange as well. Yeah. Uh, which that, yeah, uh, it's almost as though the, the, like the secondary title of all of his films should be don't meet your heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That guy just, I mean, he's, I guess he's just, maybe he's really fickle. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe he started out wanting to make a really positive documentary about Scientology. And then it's just, then he opened his eyes and looked at the the world around him and said, Nope, 
Can't happen. <laughs> now, I haven't seen every Alex Gibney movie because he literally has made dozens, it seems like. He yeah. wakes um, up halfway yeah. through the making of film and he's yeah. like, oh, I guess yeah. I better go with this. I wondered, Can't stop, won't stop. Uh, I, I wondered a while ago on on Twitter if there's ever a time when an Alex Gibney movie gets released and he's like, oh, right, that one. <laughs> like, he forgot he made it. Um, but I feel like, uh, of the ones I have seen, I feel like there's more of him in this Steve Jobs one in terms of voiceover like narration done by yeah. him and you actually do see his face at the end hmm. near, near the end and um, it is gnarled and <laughs> no it's a scarred face. um but uh i thought that was interesting that this is this is the one he chose to be like more of a presence in like you, i feel like you hear not only his narration but also you hear him asking questions more hmm. this isn't i mean it's not something he's never done before but it just of the ones i've seen it feels like there's a lot of alex Gibney himself in this one i think maybe because it's maybe it's because of the uh, the fact that the Apple products and all that, it's something that we all have kind of a, a personal connection to. Well, not all of us, but those of us who have more than one of them, right? We have that connection to them. I mean, it's something that he he mentioned himself about that, uh, and and I think that maybe maybe he sort of took the the more he learned about Steve Jobs, the more he felt that it was like maybe a personal betrayal, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point because he does start off with like the whole like thesis is like why are all these people mourning this. CEO, as if he were, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, so that is interesting. And yeah, that's a good, that's a good point that he is making. He spends two hours and seven minutes or whatever making that connection. Uh, yeah. Did you ever see the James Brown one he did, Mister Dynamite? No, I, really I, good. I mean to. That's definitely on really my to do list. I think it's on HBO Go. I want to say I could be wrong about that, but I think if you have I'm definitely, HBO Go access, I think it's there. I'm definitely going to get around to that one. And then, I mean, I was just listening to uh, the episode that you guys cut uh, put out last night, and I was interested in that that Nightmare on Elm Street documentary. Oh so man, I'm I'm going to be looking into that. Oh, and a listener told me that those same people made another comprehensive documentary about Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, but it is not readily available, and she's like, well, I don't want to buy it. That's too bad because I don't care that much about the Friday Thirteenth franchise where I've, I do like the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise more because I think there's more room for creativity. They but, should um, do a, they should do a Halloween one. They should do a Hellraiser. They should do a one. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Although that the special feature on that Blu-ray is already pretty comprehensive. There um, may be a Halloween documentary on that that massive Blu-ray box set oh, yeah. that came out. from Scream Factory. But I I haven't looked at everything in it. I've watched all the movies in it, but then <laughs> no. all the other bonus features and stuff, I haven't even gone into it yet. That w- that Halloween one would be Cool, because they because these these filmmakers they just go movie by movie, and at the very least, I want a very long, drawn out exploration of Halloween Three: Season of the Witch, yeah. and just the role that it plays in that in that series. There was, but speaking of Hellraiser, which would be really interesting, there was a an AV Club article a while back about like tracing the history of pinhead from like Clive Barker's yeah. short story to the early movies to becoming more like a Freddy Krueger type thing. And then yeah. Clive Barker sort of reclaiming him, uh, in this, because there's a new pinhead book out. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. That sort of ends the pinhead story. But like the, or the, the, the article was really interesting because it talked about how like Clive Barker's pinhead in the book now clearly isn't the same as his early ones. He like mm-hmm. Clive, like the movies ended up influencing Clive Barker in ways that maybe he didn't even hmm. intend. Uh, but if you compare them side by side, there's a little bit of the movie pinhead in the new books. Anyway, in, uh, <laughs> in that nightmare on Elm street documentary, they do talk about Freddy versus Jason. And, uh, there are so many different screenplay drafts and it took so long to 
get the rights to these to you know both of these characters and for these two different studios to come together and make it that in one script and they showed like an actual like a, a sort of a storyboard for it um it ends with freddie and jason they both go to hell and they continue fighting and then suddenly uh chains come in uh, come up from out of the ground and like bind them and then pinhead walks up and Uh says gentlemen what seems to be the problem (laughs) and it's like that would have been so great uh but they're like that's a that's a whole that's a third thing yeah it took long enough to get these two guys in the same that would have been so awesome yeah um that reminds me we don't really gotta get to the topic but um this thing with Kerry fukunaga leaving the it remake have you read about his like experiences it sounds like the studio is it paramount I can't remember who it is that he was doing this with. Um, really wanted him to treat Pennywise essentially as an, a, another part of that tradition of these, of like a Freddy Krueger or oh, Friday the 13th. interesting. And he was like, I guess, making something that was more true to the nature of the book where Pennywise is just one of the forms that this yeah. sort of, that this entity takes. Yeah. Uh, that, that Pennywise the clown is not the, the bad guy of it. It's just a, a symptom almost. Yeah. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> didn't read it didn't see it um it's a it's an interesting book definitely uh and the the casting of pennywise is nonetheless interesting in the in the miniseries no in the in the in the movie that because i oh, i don't know because I, I think the movie's still going forward right just not with him yeah and uh it's it? this actor he's a young actor his name's uh will poulter he was i believe in the first maze runner uh and i see if i scorch uh no he's scorch's best friend okay um that is <laughs> at the moment that's just for you and me because i don't think the episode has gone up no. yet um yeah no he's scorch's best friend who um you know scorch says like go on leave me uh-huh. leave me to my trials <laughs> right um and he's like i can't leave <laughs> you like... scorch i love you so much <laughs> right in fact i'm gonna defend you yes and that's like the cliffhanger at the end yeah he it's <laughs> He's like so. The Penny at the end of Maze Runner one, yeah. Uh, Pennywise shows up at Scorch's cell, yeah, like Oberyn Martell in Game of Thrones, and says, "I will be your champion." Exactly. Cut to black. Exactly. And now we get the Scorch trials. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait! I'm so excited for these trials. Absolutely. Um, let's let's uh, let's get into it, shall we? And some of them are just like time trials. See how fast <laughs> Scorch can run. <laughs> <laughs> let's get into it shall we indeed uh we've been talking about this for more than a month uh yeah, yeah. the top 50 scores of all time as voted by battleship pretensions very learned very erudite very good looking listeners oh uh and now we are going to uh well let's what what's because we're well in advance what's on the website right now when people are hearing this when they're hearing this uh, at this point, everything is on the side. Okay, but they've been seeing yes. the countdown up to the top 10 before this. Yes. So there's a very a ch- very good chance you're listening to this before you've seen what the top 10 are. Uh, the top, the, uh, what goes up today is number one. So oh, they've see, seen everything up until then. And my guess is they've probably, once they saw what numbers like five, four, and three, and two are, You've probably figured out what number right. one is, but that's all right. Well, this is a good uh, a good chance for me to say thank you to Tyler for doing everything <laughs> for this. And no, I guess once those blurbs get posted, uh, yeah, then that was written by a lot of people 
um, a lot of our contributors, um, not including myself. Yes. So I th- including West. But yes, I thank you for even coordinating that. I, I've done nothing but just show up once a week and flap my gums about this. I've done nothing for this list. You coordinated the entire thing. So thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And it is uh, a genuine pleasure because I love, love lists and i love tallying things um every time uh i got another email saying you know top 50 scores like here we go (laughs) especially because as i was saying um the uh the top five there was a time and i was keeping west uh updated as we went along so west you can attest to like that top three which we'll get to later but like that top three we're just interchangeable like yeah. from one day to the next like every one of them, them was, was number, number one at one time or another it which was, was fascinating. going around and around and I, then i knew where i wanted it to stop <laughs> yeah and, and do you think it stopped in the right place yes okay okay um and i'll say that uh within the last couple of days this this happens every year when we do one of these lists the last couple of days there's a late surge and people just send a bunch of stuff and then the, the movie that is now number one the score that is number one is number one by a pretty wide margin now okay. um and so uh and a lot of people contributed i expected that you know the people would react sort of the way you did david which is like well i like movie music but i, I feel like i can't really talk much about it yeah um and so I expected there to not be that much turnout, um, but it was just as much, maybe even more, right. than the comedy list, than the horror list. And so I'm wow. very excited by that. Well, that's um, good. So, okay. uh, you know what? Uh, but before we get into it, uh, go. I'm go with the list itself. Uh, I, I just for a couple of things. I, Are I you wanted, about to insult, insult our listeners? Maybe a little. Okay, that's fine. There, there was definitely some stuff that I, I wish had been higher. Uh, yeah. I, I made my own top 50 list, which I put on the site, uh, letterbox.com, and I'll, I'll probably tweet out a link to that. Everybody can take a look at it and yeah. see what you should have voted for. Um, you can put it in the comments of this. Indeed. Yeah, but uh, a, a couple things. One, I just wanted to mention some, what I considered some fairly glaring omissions. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, definitely, uh, there were some movies like uh, The Red Shoes, uh, which mm-hmm. conducted, uh, c- composed by uh, Brian Easdale. I mean, that's, you know, music is, I think, fairly critical to that movie. Yeah. And, that one wasn't in there. And then there's just um, a lot of movies uh, involving like uh, songs and song scores that I was kind of just I was surprised that yeah. they didn't make the list. And maybe uh, you, you can tell me, uh, Tyler, if, if anybody voted for these, like uh, the Muppet movie. Once. Wow. That shocks me. I really thought that one would have, I, I really yeah. thought that was going to make the top 50. I'll say this. I, I genuinely feel like looking at this list and seeing, you know, movies that do have original songs and all that, but that they're all in like the bottom 10 or 15. I feel like people, even though we had given them permission, like, no, if there's, if there are, is music, if there are songs that were written for this film, they're part of the score. I'm, I'm okay with that. Right. Uh, we'd given them permission, but I genuinely think that people had a hard time for themselves submitting those, those, uh, as score. And so I think, uh, if we had said soundtrack original or uh you know otherwise um <clears throat> i feel like a lot of those would have gone gone well, higher which yeah. is why we because i know you and i talked off mic about we were both pulling for that thing you do yeah spoilers it's not on here it's yeah. not that one didn't make uh the one Bear person before christmas two people submitted it which i mean there again i, I was just really surprised yeah. uh there were some some disney films uh but pinocchio was not one of them no i was a little surprised by that and uh this is spinal tap yeah 
Uh, uh, or a mighty wind like both of them have wonderful music and wonderful yeah. songs although you know a side note uh you know a future list uh top 50 songs and movies <laughs> something you might want to consider for the future i uh, tend, i'd have more to say I will say that uh, I tend to, uh, as far as when we're picking lists, uh, because I'm the one doing all the fucking work. Uh, I do tend to. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I do tend to go with uh, subjects that I feel like I can speak a bit more authoritatively about, and uh, songs. I feel like is oddly enough. I feel like that's too big for me, because so you're talking about original songs. Yeah. Okay. Songs that are written for the movie. See, and I think for me that's tough because there could be five songs in one movie and it's like right, you gotta and they're one. all great do i pick one two of them could be you know two or three could be in the top 10 for me i don't know uh but it's 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 well, worth considering i wouldn't be opposed to it well, let's if, move the a, if, if the a if i can do it then so can we do <laughs> let's move into the list um right yeah uh let's, well i will make a couple more comments in oh. general oh, okay uh i speak i think very highly of our listeners but west you and i we uh, we had had uh, a nice barbecue lunch a few uh, a couple months ago, and we talked about. Where'd you our, go? Uh, I forget the name of it. Oh, uh, Les Sisters. It's a really awesome uh, barbecue slash soul food place in Chatsworth, California. It's quite good. From my so place. you didn't go to Doctor Hogley Wogley's Tyler Texas Barbecue. Well, not no, this time. Not this time. It didn't do it, you know, but now it doesn't it's mean all... we switched allegiances. Or yeah. anything. <laughs> now it is all I want. Um, <laughs> And we talked about some of some of my concerns with doing this at all. I don't think we'd even announced it yet. I think I wanted to bounce some ideas off of you before right. we announced it. Um, and one of my concerns was that more so than talking about a film genre or um, characters or directors or whatever, where film students, even if they're young, they have a sense of reverence for um, older films and stuff and so they can recognize quality when they hear it or see it rather um my concern was that with music even if it's in a movie and movie music is different than most other types of music that someone will just hear on the radio but nonetheless movie music does change and i think in that instance if you are young or younger uh you will tend to skew towards music that movie music that came out within your lifetime. That was my concern. And I would say for the most part, I think I was right. Uh, looking at this list, like there, there's plenty of like older films on here, but considering, and, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just the nature of what we're doing. Um, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, to use a, a, a term I've heard elsewhere, uh, there's a lot of recency bias. Like, there's two movies from last year. You know, right. like, that's strange. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, it's not the end of the world because I think most of these scores are still very, very good, if not great. But, yes, it would have been nicer, nice to see some some older stuff there's some definitely some classic hollywood stuff that uh did not make the list including the one that's the tops on my list i what i consider to be the the single greatest film score uh ever written which is miklos rosa's score for ben-hur from mm. 1959 yeah. now uh the thing is, though, I mean, and there's plenty of others, uh, like, uh, you know, some, uh, there's uh, a work by, from Max Steiner that did make the list. So there's, there's a lot of stuff from uh, Dimitri Tiomkin that did uh, didn't make the list, and nothing from Eric Wolfgang Korngold, yeah. and so on and so forth. But 
The thing is, there is some stuff on this list that does uh, harken back to those scores. Yeah. That is sort of inspired by that work. And that's something that I think we always have to look at and something that, in a way, we have to look forward to in the future is that somebody is always going to be inspired by something from the past and either they're going to bring it back in their own way or they're going to bring it back as they remember it. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, cause this stuff is, is always going to be uh, changing. There will always be some kind of new uh, musical style and somebody will, uh, will want to incorporate that into a film mm. and that's fine. And that's good. We should have that. We should have that innovation, but then keep in mind that like, even that stuff, like uh, uh, like Mika Levy's score for for Under the Skin, you know, that won the uh, the the BP or right. this year, you know, that is is pretty bold and unique and, and original, and even that is going to come back at some point, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere down the road, somebody is going to be watching an old copy of Under the Skin and think oh, that music is interesting. Maybe I could use that something like that in my film, and it it all just goes around and and in cycles. Orchestral music has never gone away, right. It's still around. Uh, people are using it in movies all the time. So, although, yeah, there is a lot of you know classic Hollywood music that did not make this list, its spirit is still on this list, uh, right. I think, in, in, a ma- in a major way. So, yeah. well, let's, way to spin it positively. Well <laughs> yeah. done. Um, That's a good, uh, great place to jump in. I, uh, since you guys have more to say, okay. I'll be in charge of moving things along. Okay. Okay, so number 50... Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone by John Williams. Well, and what I'll say is that we're going to kind of speed through yeah, 50 yeah, yeah. through 11. Like we did with Wayne Fetterman for yeah. the top 50 comedies yeah. last year. Uh, we have specified that uh, if we've given ourselves three movies each in the top 50 that if we want that if, if there's time and we feel particularly passionate about, right. we will talk a little bit about that. But for the most part, we're going to breeze through this and spend a lot of time on that top 10. So, okay. yes. So, Harry Potter yeah. and the Sorcerer's Stone. I worked uh, I worked the stats on this list, by the way, and that one by John Williams. John Williams is on this list more than any other composer. Yes, he is. Seven. Not, not a surprise. I don't know about the Harry Potter. Th- like, I think it's a great theme. I don't know that I would have voted for the whole score for that's the thing and that's another thing i'll say that there are a few instances here on this list where i think people are responding to one bit of the score and not the whole thing right yeah. the harry potter i'm i'm not even that familiar with the music i'm more familiar with the theme mm-hmm. from yeah. the harry potter movies than any of the the other music which is a yeah. marvelous theme but yes uh, yeah. yeah it's really good uh number 49 up by michael giacchino i'm mm-hmm. a big fan of michael giacchino from his work on lost uh, yeah, because See, that's pretty... another one. I think that that one made the list purely on the strength of the first ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, here's one I like in a movie I don't like. Number forty eight, Interstellar by Hans Zimmer. I think that's a great score. I it is better than the movie. And, yes, uh, absolutely. Way I didn't better than the mind movie. that it made me not be able to hear dialogue <laughs> when I watched the movie because I liked the music so much. And um, he's uh, he's on the list the second uh, most. Yeah, as, yeah, as I've number. seen the list yeah. four yeah. times. Four number times. forty. And, and I will say real quick, and this is this is not a, an in depth thing, but like Hans Zimmer is a guy that uh oh and by the way had i not miscounted when i emailed you guys hans zimmer would have been on here four. one more time well oh, number, number 51 is gladiator basically i would have made that uh, four and a half because he he is credited as a composer and so is lisa gerard okay all right so it would have been four and a half and so but uh hans zimmer is somebody that i feel like for a long time you kind of knew what you were getting but i think in the last few years i and i think uh christopher nolan has pushed him to like really 
sort not necessarily reinvent himself, but do some pretty neat things. And, and that score for Interstellar is amazing. Yeah, uh, he's. Do, I mean, consider that back in 1989, he did the score for uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, he sure did. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Number 47. Uh, and you guys stop me when it's time to, for one of yours to talk about, because okay. um, I only have one list up in front of me at the time. At a time, uh, number forty-seven, the mission, Ennio Morricone. Number forty-six, the conversation, David Shire. I'm very. I've got nothing else to say except that I'm thrilled that it was included, mm-hmm. especially just because, in general, I'm glad that David Shire is represented on this list. I think he's mar- marvelous. Yeah, a score that's largely uh, one instrument. Mm-hmm. Number 45, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Mark Damon and Trey Parker. This is one of mine. Uh, Good, because I have things I want to say about it, too, which is the music, like the movie, is both a parody and works on its own as the thing. So, you know, like as you go, it's a musical and different songs are like, it's almost like weird Al at his best. Like they're yeah. parodies of specific types of movie musicals or yeah. stage musicals. But even if you don't know that it, they all work great on, yeah. on their own. The, they're like the, the peak of it is probably when they're doing that little Les Miserables yeah. homage oh, yeah. right down to flying the French flag at the end of it. <laughs> right. Um, but also uh, Satan's song about uh, yeah, up there, up there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, might as well be, you know, Ariel singing yeah. part of your Very world, much. you know, yeah. but then you also have, you also have Uncle Fucker, which is one of the most, which is one of the catchiest songs ever. Um, yeah, it's, I was very happy that this wound up on the list. I think it's, the songs are funny and so catchy and the music itself, you know, songs aside, the music also, it, Mark Shaman, it's like they realize like, okay, we're not a TV show anymore. We're doing a movie. So we're going to have a movie score and it's big and like, epic and yeah. and it's it's all of these wonderful things i i'm very happy that it was included we can move on number 44 the wizard of oz harold arlen and yip harburg that's yip harburg <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> it sure is number 43 gone with the wind max steiner number 42 a hard day's night the beatles and george martin yep that's uh that, that's, that's one the I, credit <laughs> I, I really wish had uh, had been a little higher on the list a lot higher on the list that's one of, it's one of my favorites it's one of my favorite movies of all time it was definitely in my top 10 um it's it's the beatles I mean, what, are, what are you complaining about <laughs> but <laughs> the, the the weird trivia thing though is that yeah i mean the, the beatles are credited and also george martin is credited as uh, sort of doing the uh, the the incidental score and he was nominated for an academy award for this movie the beatles on the other hand were not um which is oh, kind wow. of a, a weird thing that happened but uh, i mean obviously he didn't win the uh, george martin he was beat out by uh, oh what was that the big thing that year my fair lady ah so but you know the beatles did get an oscar later on for the movie that they don't like which is uh, let it be they won the Oscar for uh, best original song score in 1970. So were they present to? Uh, I don't accept? think so. There was they were embroiled in that whole uh, lawsuit hedge maze by that time, right? And, uh, hmm. and not only that, but I mean, they didn't like the movie. Notice, you know, the movie is still not commercially available today. They don't like it. Right. They, hmm. they, it I'm sure that it's probably not going to be commercially available until after the, the remaining two Beatles are dead. But uh, yeah, so there you go. Even even Ringo, even Ringo has an Academy Award. It's, and those, see, it doesn't even come up in well, the, plus like, the in articles you got for about Caveman. It. They right? don't talk about it. You know, I mean, they, you could say Academy Award winner Ringo Starr, but they don't even mention. It. That's how much they don't like. Let it be. <laughs> they melted those down years ago. Uh, number forty-one. Here he is again. The Thin Red Line. Hans Zimmer. 
Number 40, The Lion King, Hans Zimmer, Elton John, Tim Rice. Number 39, Rocky, Bill Conti. Number 38, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, John Barry. I will say real quick, uh, there are a couple... There are a couple submissions of uh, James Bond films. There's Dr. No, there's Goldfinger. But this is the one that was submitted. It's it's strange. It's like everybody... Now, I've never seen it. Uh, I've heard it's either. actually quite good. It's but is, good is there something particularly notable about the score in this Bond movie as opposed to the other ones? Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that it's the one Bond movie... Well, apart from Dr. No. Uh, but after Dr. No, they had the, the whole deal of, well, we're going to have a theme song. And then with Honor Majesty's Secret Service they didn't have like the big brassy theme song that you're usually accustomed to Toward, at the end there was a song We Have All the Time in the World which was sung by Louis Armstrong hmm. uh, but yeah I think maybe just with this one the score was uh, it was more sort of more prominent in this film than the other ones because it films a little longer uh, there's a little more I think more... up until Skyfall it was the longest James Bond movie yeah. I want to say yeah it was close to two and a half hours yeah. But uh, but it is a very good score, and and the theme is is a really good one. Mm-hmm. I think b- because there's no lyrics and all that kind of stuff, you can really pay attention to it, and maybe that's what sort of grabbed people about it more than the other ones. Hmm. Number thirty seven, on uh, sorry no, uh, the Magnificent Seven. Number thirty seven, the Magnificent Seven. Elmer Bernstein, uh, Bernstein. Bernstein? Uh, I think I'm pretty sure it's Bernstein. Yeah, Bernstein. But, okay. Uh, um, number 36, Beauty and the Beast. That's the 90s uh, version. Yeah. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Number 35, Sunshine, John Murphy. Number 34, Planet of the Apes, Jerry Goldsmith. Yes, that is the uh, 1968 Planet <laughs> yes, of the Apes. Yes, good call, good call. I didn't even think to make the distinction. Nobody does. Um, well, you, uh, you reminded us all of Tim Burton's uh, Planet of the Apes, which you and I went to see in a very scary part of town. For, yes, we like, did. Two bucks. Should not have done that. <laughs> and you had already seen it. And I was like, I don't know why you wanted to tag along. I didn't even invite you. I was like, not, not to, sorry. Uh, hey, fucker. <laughs> what I mean is I didn't even like ask you yeah, to you come with me. Yeah, you weren't insistent or yes. anything. It was just Sorry. like, hey, I'm going to go see this. And I think you threw out like, you want to come? And that right. was I it. think that's, yeah, that, that's what I meant. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> not that you like invited yourself along. Yeah, no, we, it fine. wasn't on the books for a long right. time. Like, oh, it's our special day. Right, no, I just mentioned like, hey, I missed it when it was in theaters the first time, this cheap theater in yeah. the bad part of town, which now, by the way, is a very trendy part of town in Chicago. Awesome. Um, we're, <laughs> we're winning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Um, anyway, Anyway, uh, number 33, The Last of the Mohicans. Um, I've never actually seen this movie all the way through. I just watched it a couple of weeks ago. For the first time? It's uh, Trevor, yeah, because, Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman. Yeah, uh, partly because it was on this list, but also I, I just happened to be going through all of Michael Mann's movies. And, mm. so, yeah, and this, I liked it a lot. Uh, Last of the Mohicans, uh, that score was uh, submitted by, among others, uh, my wife. It is one of her. It is a score that I'm very familiar with because she will often play it uh, while she's like working or something like that. And it, it, there's a nice heroism to it. I feel like that's one that kind of goes to what you were saying. It feels not like a throwback, but it definitely feels influenced by like kind of the 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 old school epics. I yeah. think. Um, we can move on. Sorry. Number thirty-two, Inception. Hans Zimmer. Speaking of influence, that like that whatever that percussive thing is yeah. it's like has shown up nonstop for like five years now uh, yeah, I think it's, they're going to use that. it in a lot of trailers and yeah. other things and Johnny Marr played guitar on that score oh from from the Smiths from the Smiths um, number 31 
if I had voted, this mm-hmm. would have been one of the ones I voted for. Yeah, you uh, didn't vote. Because I, I literally, I came up with like eight, and I was like, I need to come up with ten. But I'm like, I don't know enough about scores to feel confident. But number 31 is Punch Drunk Love by John Bryan. Um, I love this because it, um, well, you know, we we talk about it when music like tells you how to feel that's a that's a bad thing mm. but this the way this movie or maybe this, this music ramps up the anxiety of the movie it yeah. is very much informing how you feel about things like it takes well it's, the, conte- it's contextualizing your emotions which is different than manipulating them right it, like you could take the scene of um what i would use as the highlight of the score the scene with adam sandler in the warehouse where he's sort of running back and forth like you could lay another music under that and it's like a farce right it would be fun and funny but the music that he uses is like almost arrhythmic it doesn't like match the cutting of the scene in a way that is very intentional and makes it so anxiety ridden yeah uh in that that sequence when i think a few years ago when when west was on and we did just like some of our favorite scores i think you actually played yeah that track i think from i did it. yeah i forgot about that um number 30 back to the future alan silvestri i'm surprised given our listeners that it did not rank higher i'm happy <laughs> but that's um, a, but the music <laughs> for back to the score. future is pretty great no it is i'm sorry that shouldn't be mean and i just i'm just saying all this mean stuff without thinking today yeah uh i gotta learn to think um i can't think and read at the same time um number 29 Koyana Scotsi by Philip Glass. The this, only is that the one that goes. How about West and I'll do the episode, and you can uh, sit this one out. <laughs> this is another one that I, I sort of wish had ranked a little higher. Uh, I mean, for starters, it's it really is a sort of a signature Philip Glass score. Not only that, but I mean, there aren't a lot of instances where you have a movie that is purely visuals and wall to wall music. Yeah. You know, there's no dialogue. It's just, and there's no sound effects. It's the score. It's like mm-hmm. almost 90 minutes of solid music and it's fantastic. Uh, it's one of my favorite scores of all time. Yeah. It's a, it's a great movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, although I've never seen either. I haven't seen the trilogy. I've only seen, Comic I own the trilogy, even though I've only seen the first one. Oh, uh, well, and I feel like, I, and he does, does he do the music for all of them? Yes. Yeah. He does. Uh, basically he and Godfrey Reggio, they're basically, just joined at the hip now because the, uh-huh. the Reggio's most recent film Visitors uh, same thing Philip Glass did the music for that and it's also another uh, non-narrative film and all of those I think every one of their collaborations is just really amazing to me just for starters because you have a non-narrative uh, uh, feature mm-hmm. and there's there's no dialogue and it's just a lot of imagery and he's basically trying to tell you something about the world that you live in and it's always accompanied by the Philip Glass uh, score and all three of the scores in the Katsi trilogy, uh, they do have differences. There are things about them that se- each one that separates it from the others. So I, I would highly recommend that everybody check out the Katsi trilogy. Uh, Visitors is a very good film too, but I mean the Katsi trilogy as a whole, I, I think it's really just three magnificent films. Uh, the, uh, the the second film, Poakatsi, has a lot more of a world music feel. So mm, okay. you, because a lot of it is set over in, in sort of in third world countries, and if you're really interested in those kinds of sounds and textures, uh, it's it's really remarkable stuff. Uh, let me ask you this, because I know that Philip Glass is your favorite composer. Um, if and this is the this is his only film on the list, and I feel like that is uh, unfortunate. But at the same time, I was trying to think. What else would, what else would I include? And then I, I figured I'd throw it to you. 
if there is only going to be one Philip Glass score on this list, uh, are you okay with it being this one, or would you do you think it should be a different one? No, no, this is the one. Okay, this is this was in, definitely in my personal top ten. Okay, uh, the score for Poikatsi is in my top fifty. But uh, what about Candyman? Candyman is really good. Yeah, uh, and it, it's funny. I, that's something that I was going to bring up a little later on. Actually, very very shortly because something uh, in an upcoming score that reminded me of uh, part of the score of Candyman. And there's not even that much music in that movie, but where it is employed, it's employed very effectively. And it's it, there's a really haunting uh, uh, melody that I absolutely love. I recently bought the the, the score on vinyl. Oh, cool! <laughs> because that uh, became available, and I thought, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I wish I had written down, or I wish I had kept the the ten that I had submitted because uh, in my top ten, uh, Philip Glass's score for The Fog of War was in there. That's that's I, I love that one. score. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, we already uh, briefly mentioned this one, number twenty eight, Under the Skin. Uh, is it Micah or Mika Levy? I believe it's Mika. Mika Levy. Um, and. Number- and I'm, I, you know, it's it only came out last year, but it is such a distinct score. Yeah, uh, that I'm I'm kind of okay with the inclusion of it. Number twenty seven, Batman by Danny Elfman. Okay, and this is uh, another one, one that I want. One of to yours. Talk about. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, I'll go ahead and let everyone know this is the only Danny Elfman on this list, which is surprising. And even though I think it's probably his most iconic score, I will say uh, having. And Wes, you, you can attest to this as well. Uh, having uh, sort of immersed myself in the work of Danny Elfman over the last couple of years by going to see uh, the wonderful, I hope they do it again this year, um, the wonderful, uh, the, the music of Danny Elfman in Tim Burton films uh, at the Nokia Theater. Well, it's going to be on PBS. Is it? Yeah, I think uh, in October, as a matter of fact. Well, uh, check it out, everybody. Um, and so, but like, I do feel like there's a, he has like a one, two, three punch of wonderful scores of Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands. And I think between those three, you can kind of get everything that you need from him. Not to imply that he doesn't do great work with Mars Attacks and these other films, but, um, but yeah. And I, and I did find myself being like, like Beetlejuice is a pretty iconic score as is Edward Scissorhands. And I was surprised that so few people, or maybe just that I think there's been maybe something of a, and I know that I myself have said it, something of a backlash uh, against Danny Elfman where everyone's like, okay, we know what we can get. We know <laughs> we're, what we're going to get from him. Um, and so I think they just sort of said like, yeah, but you can't ignore that Batman score. So we'll put that on there and then that's it. Um, yeah, it is kind of a shame because you're right that uh, uh, Edward Scissorhands is a magnificent score. And then yeah. also, as, as I brought up before, the the Nightmare Before Christmas, I mean, that's... Yeah. That, that's all him. I mean, he did all the music. He did all the lyrics. Yeah. You know, he sang the role of Jack Skellington. What more do you want from the guy? Yeah. But also, I would say that, you know, when you say that, uh, you know, those three scores that you mentioned, that, that you know, it's everything that you need to, need to know from him. Uh, I, I would disagree with that because uh, some years later, I don't know if you saw the, uh, the Errol Morris documentary, uh, Standard Operating Procedure. I did not, but I did see The Unknown Known, which he did the music for. Yeah, but his... Elfman did the score for Standard Operating Procedure, and it's it's different from a lot of that early stuff. I think he's he's taking some some different steps, and it's very intriguing. It's a very engrossing score. It's very kind of... it, it It's a lot quieter, and it, it's got sort of more of a melancholy, but then there's a sort of an, uh, a malevolent undercurrent beneath that. And uh, I think that's well worth a listen. Uh, the, the guy, he still has some, some tricks up his sleeve. He did the score for the end of the tour, 
which is that's another like, one that's right, right. i yeah, forgot yeah. about that uh yeah i, I want to get my hands on the soundtrack for that it's it's now available uh you can get it online but um yeah and that was that i i didn't even realize it because yeah it wasn't until because they, they save all the credits for the end mm-hmm. and there was because you know when it starts out it started out with an instrumental from rem right uh, it was an old uh, B side of theirs, and uh, and and then it was just a lot of songs. But then there was some incidental uh, score, and I wasn't sure if those were some other band's instrumentals or not. And yeah. then you get to the end credits, and you realize, oh well, so there's some there's some score from Danny Elfman. I thought, okay, yeah. well, that's kind of interesting. So well, I like uh, that he's kind of reinventing himself, but at the same time, I, I and I and I. So I've been talking about Danny Elfman in general, like the Batman score is pretty astounding and i feel like um that along and you and i west had an email exchange about this the superman score is is pretty amazing as well as far but between those two i feel like you have the template for every notable superhero score from then on you've got the light not the light but like you have the the heroic and then the dark and uh that batman score i Uh, in my top 10 I did not submit the Batman score I submitted the Batman return score which I think is actually even better Um, but anyway I'm glad you brought it back to Batman Um, Edward Scissorhands would have been my Danny Elfman but that's probably Mm -hmm. just in the strength of my having seen it more times because I love that movie but before we move on I wanted to mention West you and I met at Com- the, our first Comic Con was right after a Danny Elfman panel it was between right. Danny Elfman, Elfman and, and Stan, Stan Freeberg two guys that uh, are heroes of mine yeah, yeah. And I got yeah. to I got to meet Stan Freeberg later, and I got his autograph. That was, Me and too. you know, now I mean, see, now he's he's passed away. So yeah. that's I mean, now it makes it even even more precious that I was able to to yeah. shake his hand and everything. But it's a part of Battleship Retention history. We met <laughs> after the Danny Elfman panel at yeah. Comic Con. I wanted to ask one question, didn't get the chance. Yeah, it was twenty ten. Yeah. Um, moving on, number twenty six, E. T. by John Williams. Now that that's the that's the extraterrestrial. That's, right? that's correct. Okay, yeah. Uh, number twenty five, Suspiria by Goblin. Have you guys seen Suspiria? I have. I never have, actually. Really? Yeah. I, that's that's the one in, in film in the top 25 that I had not seen, and so I watched it earlier this week. Yeah, I, I remember think, you know, seeing it and thinking like the music is, ve- is very notable. What did you think of it? Uh, Could have used a little color. <laughs> yeah, so, so drab. I mean, hey, have a little splash of red here. For those of you who haven't seen it, I'm being pretty sarcastic it's, i swear to god dario argento was like dating the owner of a paint store and, and one day she said man i got all this red in stock i, I can't move it nobody's buying it man and argento was like red huh let me see what i can do and then he made suspiria um but uh, the thing though is that the score for goblin I, okay uh this is not my favorite score on this list by a long shot I, it's there's some some interesting stuff there but this is the thing that i was going to uh, mention because you mentioned the score for Candyman. there is uh, a sort of you know, you know melody in there that's sort of a sort of like light music box type melody in the score for mm. Suspiria that very much reminded me uh, of what Philip Glass would later do uh, in Candyman. But then there's another piece uh, uh, in the score that reminded me very much of something that Philip Glass had done at the time, and I can't help wondering if maybe the musicians from Goblin had been influenced by Philip Glass because of some of his it was his earlier. Um, minimalist material i'm thinking very specifically of like music in 12 parts that he did in the 1970s and i'm sure that the the guys in goblin had access to at least two of those parts um because it sounded very very reminiscent of that that early philip glass but other than that i yeah i just i wasn't the the movie is it's 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 a fun wild stylistic exercise uh there's some some interesting violence but the story is a little silly but you know what are you gonna do 
Moving on, number yeah. 24. We know we were talking earlier when it came to Interstellar about scores that are better than the movie. Mm-hmm. Number 24 is Requiem for a Dream by Clint Manziel. I would think that's uh, one of the leaders of the pack when it comes to scores that are better than the movie. <laughs> I don't know if that's, uh, that's probably an overstatement. But uh, I don't think that movie holds up very well. But that score clearly holds up because everyone still uses it in movie trailers yeah. all the time. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really solid, it's it's a very solid score. When I think of Requiem for a Dream, I think of Ellen Burstyn. I think of the like the little montage sequences when characters are getting high. And then I think of this music. Yeah. You know? But when people think, when people hear, I, I would bet there are people who hear that music and think of like the Two Towers trailer before they think of Requiem for a Dream. Uh, Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers yeah. used a variation on the. Did it really? You know the. Yeah, I've heard it in a couple of trailers. Yeah, but that's the thing. Every now and then, you know, <laughs> stop it. The, the the trailer guild or whoever the hell is responsible for that stuff. Every every so often, they just seize on this one track and say, "Okay, we're all using this." Yeah, you know, and sometimes yeah, sometimes it's a track like that. Actually, there was a, a track from uh, Philip Glass's score for Poikatsi that was used like several times uh, in the '90s in 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 various trailers, and and then sometimes it's a song like "Gimme Shelter," which you yeah. know. That, that is overused yeah. now but there are like I, I don't know if it's just me but I feel like this is probably true for a lot of people in this day and age like orchest- orchestral orchestral music is less likely to get stuck in your head the way that a, a, a pop song would I oh, think oh yeah. yeah but that that thing that thing that I'm that I was like oh, yeah. referencing that's in all the trailers I find myself I haven't well I will have not listened to it for months and I will find myself humming that just while I'm like cleaning my apartment or something Ugh. does it make you clean faster <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe like, but do you know what that's an interesting question though is, <laughs> the fate is, of the world depends it, on me scrubbing the stove <laughs> but in your case I mean, since you didn't really care for the movie that much then so obviously it's not a product of the movie and maybe it's but more the thing, I did like the movie a lot when I was 17 yeah. or whenever uh, when, whatever. when you like but do you think that maybe it has something to do with the, the repetition of it being used in in other things I, it's all part of the same loop i think because the reason it's used a lot is because it's incredibly effective in yeah. getting across this like this is very important whatever's going on right now this is the only thing that matters right now which would, they did that with uh, uh, a track from the movie sunshine which is also on here uh that track that i played at one point yeah um which because I'd never seen Sunshine, I was like, "Oh, I know this." Yeah, when you when you played it, yeah, it's, it's in trailers all the time, and it's just like we need a kind of almost heavenly importance to right. uh, to what we're doing, and so let's just use that John Murphy track. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, number twenty three, Jurassic Park, John Williams. Um, is I, this? I love this score. Yeah. Do you? You have a shrug. It's. I mean, I'm. I'll say this. I'm surprised it wasn't higher just because uh, I you know a lot of people felt the need to write an explanation of why they love it so much when they submitted it really yeah it was strange um and so uh and this is one that uh, my wife uh submitted and and there's enough power in that score that even the even the the bad Jurassic Park movies, which one could say is maybe all of them, um, except for the first one, uh, they all use that score, and it just makes you you have a reaction to it. I think, but people do have a tendency to want to. Uh, I, or I, I think I understand why people might have a tendency to want to apologize for it because it's kind of obvious and manipulative and sappy in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it, you know, in the way that it sort of gets this like this whatever this is glorious whatever you're saying. Like, yeah, yeah. Just imagine the camera panning over yeah. a, a, a vista of some sort. Um, but it really does work. And maybe like I think, uh, I mean, by 
Rock and Roll Hall of Fame year, so 25 years. We've got, what, three years before this movie's 25 years old? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think we're getting to the point where we don't have to, like, chalk it up to nostalgia or <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. Like, it's good. Let's just not apologize for it. It's a good score. Well, and there's and there's two themes in it essentially there's the right. there's kind of the the majestic one and then there's sort of the adventure one yeah and yeah. they're both really good yeah yeah all right number 22 robocop uh basil polidorus he I went think? to my high school he went to your high school how's Not he doing at the same time oh okay no, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's like that the, we have a at garden grove high school garden grove california and then the, in the center of the oldest building on campus it was like a tiny little makeshift hall of fame and there's like stephen shortridge the guy who replaced John Travolta in the Sweat Hogs and Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, there's like a couple of other people that I had no idea who the hell they were. Uh, biggest name would be Steve Martin. Oh, and now it's I mean, a pretty big name. Now that I'm now after I've gone, they probably put in Lenny Dykstra. Although, <laughs> yeah. although maybe they they took him right back out. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, he was he was a senior when I was a freshman at Garden Grove High School, and so we were there when you know I mean I was working for the newspaper when our sports editor uh, Diane got the word that he had been signed to the, the the Mets farm team, and she was just over the moon. It's like okay, sure, whatever. Did you ever read the G- the article in GQ about the guy who got hired to write for Lenny Dykstra's magazine? Do you remember Lenny, Lenny Dykstra had a very short lived magazine venture? I heard about the magazine. I don't know anything about the guy who. Oh, uh, you should is, read this. The, the, this a guy who was hired wrote wrote about his experiences with uh, with writing. For, for nails oh, uh, I mean this guy Lenny Dexter started a magazine the customer base of which was super wealthy athletes so already like yeah. <laughs> you've got a magazine for yeah, a luxury but... lifestyle with a potential customer base of like a thousand people maybe yes but total. each issue costs ten thousand right, dollars exactly. yeah um Okay, that's enough about Lenny Dykstra, who did the score for RoboCop. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I will say, early on, like for the for the first couple of weeks, RoboCop was in the top ten. Uh, uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I got no problem with that. Um, number twenty one, Chinatown, Jerry Goldsmith, marvelous. Number twenty, The Fountain, Clint, Ma- Clint Manziel and uh, Darren Aronofsky team up again and show up on yeah, the. Yeah, I've the, never seen The Fountain. Actually, neither have I. I've seen it. It's. Uh, I think it's great, but in a way that I absolutely cannot explain. I think it's one of those movies that generations are going to have to catch up to at some point in the hmm. future. Number 19, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, Nick Cave, and Warren Ellis. Take a breath there, David. <laughs> okay, now, <laughs> right. now I will say uh, this was not one I was planning on talking about, but I've got questions for you, West. As we would email back and forth, and every time this popped up, you, there, there seemed to be an audible sigh coming through uh, the email. Do you not care for this score? Uh, it's okay, but uh, as... Uh, there's plenty of other scores that uh, that I like more. There's mm. plenty of Western scores that I like more. You know, the, uh, How the West Was Won by uh, um, oh, Newman, Alfred Newman. Uh, you know, the, the Searchers by mm-hmm. Max Steiner, uh, High Noon by Dimitri Tiomkin. I mean, there's just, there's, there's so many. And, and I, the movie itself is just one of those things where I, I like the movie. Mm-hmm. I appreciate uh, Roger Deakins' cinematography. Yeah. But the whole movie feels like an exercise for sort of pseudo-intellectuals who want to be able to uh, point to a Western and say, there's a Western that I love, but they're still fundamentally opposed to entertainment. Um, the the movie is good, but it's just it's too long and too quiet for my tastes. The music is nice, but I didn't really... I don't really feel anything extraordinary coming out of it. Did you ever read the novel 
that it's or I guess the the book I no. guess that it's based on. No. I I bought it at a, at a book sale in high school. And I left it at home and I always meant to read it. It was on a stack. And then like 10 years after I'd moved away and my, my mom moved, she had a garage sale and she sold stuff. And I was like, I can't believe you sold that book. I was going to read that. <laughs> this is like 11 years after I'd bought it. Um, uh, and I should specify, I, I do love the movie and I think the, and I think the music actually, there's, there's a, I think there's a wonderful melancholy to the, to the music that definitely goes with that movie. Um, and then there's like, there's the, kind of the, the very strange, almost circusy type music at the beginning. But I, I really like the music for like, I think it's called song for Bob and it is, um, sort of the, the, the very sad theme of Robert Ford. And, uh, and I, and I like that. I just, uh, and we won't necessarily get into a discussion about the film itself, but it, it is the kind of Western that I like. And, and I like that it exists. It's not, it can exist along with the with the more boisterous ones as well, uh, but I also like the proposition, which is uh, I don't know if Nick Cave is involved in a western. You can bet it's not going to be uh, fun. Yeah, maybe years from now, the movie might merit some more consideration on a, on a top fifty film scores of all time list. I, I just feel like maybe it's it's a little too soon to be putting that one on the list. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, my uh, screen went dark just as... Okay. Um, number 18, Blade Runner, Vangelis. Yep. Uh, number 17... Hang on a minute. What's up? I just... I don't know. <laughs> I've never been a big fan of Vangelis. Vangelis. Uh, you got to correct me on my pronunciations here. There's one coming up I never know how to Oh, pronounce. I don't even... I, I'm, I'm just guessing that it's Vangelis. I'm, okay. I'm, I may be wrong, too. I, but uh, now I, I guess I'm still smarting from Chariots of Fire. Because I think there's a really good instance of... Uh, uh, a score winning an Academy Award and really it it's like the first three minutes is all anybody ever really remembers of it because huh. that's all there is, is there's the theme and then there's some other music too but you don't know what it is because nobody cares and you just remember the Chariots of Fire theme that got played on the radio and, and on light FM stations all over this goddamn country and, <laughs> and then it went to number one and then he won an Oscar and the film that should have won an Oscar that year that had an actual full bodied score uh, was just given the go by and uh, well it'll be coming up later so we'll, I won't talk about oh, it indeed, now yeah. but still it's just it, yeah. that's one of those things and it's, that's happened twice that I can remember because in 78, Giorgio Moroder did the score for uh, Midnight Express. Uh-huh. And there was that one bit that they called The Chase that was released as a single, and it was a big top 40 dance hit. And then he won the Oscar, and he took it from the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it's just, you know, if, if you could just take out that one chunk of score and say, well, we're not going to enter this uh, in the Oscars as uh, original score. We're just going to put this bit in uh, for best original song and let everybody vote for that. Let them have that if they want. But the rest of the score for Midnight Express, it's nothing to write home about. The rest of the score for Chariots of Fire, like I said, I mean, and I, I've listened to the whole soundtrack on that movie and there's, there's nothing going on there. <laughs> and, um, Blade Runner, Blade Runner is actually more of an is more of an interesting score than Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in terms of science fiction scores, I mean, there's there's plenty of other things I would I definitely would have liked to see uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still by Bernard Herrmann yeah. on this list. As far as sort of like interesting uh, uh, experimental electronic stuff, you could have put in the score for Tron by Wendy Carlos. You could have put in the score for uh, the other Tron movie by Daft Punk. You could have put in there. Uh, there was uh, it came very close uh, yeah. Tron Legacy. Okay. Um, that one didn't do it for me. 
I didn't see. Tron I didn't Tron see. Tron 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 I didn't see the movie. I just, uh, but I listened to the score as a Daft Punk fan, and it yeah. uh, didn't do it that much for me. Um, number seventeen, Fargo by Carter Burwell. Is this one you wanted to talk about? This is I imagine the, because yeah. it's like there's something about the. I know mean, I don't want to talk just about the opening mm-hmm. of movies because you just decried that, <laughs> but like. Something about like that title card that says this is based on a true story, which yeah. is not, but that's a great thing. And then that opening music, you just go like, oh, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, well, that's one of the reasons. I, this is the only Carter Burwell on the list, which bums me out a little bit just because I'm such a fan of his. But uh, I would like to see Miller's Crossing. Though. I think Miller's yeah. Crossing is a wonderful score. And I also, I can understand why people wouldn't talk about it because kind of takes a backseat to the actual songs. Um, but um, his score for Where the Wild Things Are is uh, also oh, very yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And being John Malkovich, now that I think about it, that's, yeah. that's a great one, too. Well, also, I mean, he did Barton Fink, yeah. but there's maybe, like, eight minutes of yeah. that score in that movie. Yeah, when I bought the Fargo soundtrack, they threw in the score to Barton Fink it's on like the, the disc. The back of you the can disc. hit it all on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Fargo, I think what I like about it is that like the story is small. You know, It's just a, a handful of people. It's a little kidnapping plot, but the music makes it feel so operatic. It makes you feel like there's a tragedy to it. And, and, and because the music is so big, it makes, it makes you feel like Again, it informs how you view the story, and it's suddenly this small story takes on epic emotional proportions. And I, and yeah, I, I Fargo was one of the ten that I submitted as well, and I, I thought I think it's amazing. And the music is used very sparingly too. It's mm-hmm. not yeah. like wall to wall music, but when it's yeah. there, it's very effective every time. Yeah. Um, have I haven't watched the Fargo TV series? Have they used or in any way like quoted or referenced any of? I have not seen any of it either. I'm trying to remember. I I think they did, like at the very end. But the rest of the time, there's an original score by somebody else. This is actually mm. very good. Uh, good. I, I, I loved that first season of Fargo. And I, I'm hoping that it's not going to be like another true detective thing where they do a second season and everybody's like, what the hell is this? Ah, and then they throw <laughs> their hands up and walk away. For the record, I liked the second season of True Detective. As did I. I thought it was very good. I, I don't know I what people through. I don't know what people were expecting. I just, but you know, they're expecting what? the first season. That's the end, but it's, it's it, miles I think away it's just, from yeah, it. It's really just the, the first season has the benefit of the shock of the new. That's mm-hmm. really all. And then once the shock wears off, then, you know, then you have to sit and pay attention and, and you got to look for other stuff in there. I, I think I didn't, I know this isn't what we're talking about, but I don't think that what, that's what it was for me. I think the the first season found more, and maybe it's because I live in Los Angeles, it was less interesting to me. Like, the first season found more to do with its with its setting as being a part of the fabric of the universe, whereas I feel like the, the use of Los Angeles or Southern California in general in uh, True Detective Season 2 was just like... Uh, third-rate James Elroy. Well, part of the problem is that they they had a made-up city. Yeah, Vinci. So, which, as a Dashiell Hammett fan, Uh the idea of a town that's pure industry and Top to bottom corrupt uh-huh. is wonderful. Like I, I that's what Red Harvest <laughs> Red is Harvest. all about, and and I'm a big fan of that sort of thing. That just to the point where one of my favorite moments in the second season is when Colin Farrell's character he's being you know kind of briefed by his uh, superiors, and he kind of is taking a read on the room, and he's like, 
so do you want me to solve this? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, and I feel like the, a lot of the second season can be kind of wrapped up in that question. Um, um okay, we can, uh, let's we can move on to number 16, the empire strikes back by John Williams. Um, excellent. This is one of the ones in preparation for this. I did listen. I didn't get as much time in, but while driving around, I listened to some Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. I listened to this and I listened to one we haven't gotten to yet. Okay. Um, everything I have to say about, uh, that you'll find on the website. Right. Yeah. Okay. The, the, yeah. Empire strikes back is something that I remember. Wayne Fetterman said this in our commentary for aliens. He, he happened to mention empire strikes back and he mentioned the Imperial March not showing up until Empire Strikes Back and you, me, and Aaron Neuwirth, all of us were incredulous about it because just like such an indelible piece of music, surely it must have been in the first film. No. Nope. It shows up in the second film. And and, like, I'm blown away by it because like, it's such a, that and then like Yoda's theme is also really wonderful. Like, I, I, when people submitted Empire Strikes Back separate from Star Wars, Part of me just thought, like, I'll just put them together. But I thought, well, there was no guarantee there was going to be a second one. And he and he expounded the he expanded the world right, musically right. in that second one. So I was OK with with having it be a separate ent- uh, entry. Number 15, Halloween by John Carpenter. So that's another one. I think that everybody loves the theme. Yeah. But how much of the rest of the score is anybody really invested in? <laughs> that's a good point. It is a great theme, though. It's it a, is. It's, it's one of the theme. best. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll definitely give them that. And that's, and that's kind of rare when you think about how, how many directors are composing music for their own films. You know, right. yeah. there's him and there's Clint Eastwood and there's Robert Rodriguez and um, <laughs> who's the other guy? There's somebody else. I can't remember who. Uh, but <laughs> well, and also like Halloween. Mel Brooks. <laughs> Mel Brooks. You know, he, I mean, you know, he wrote the theme for Blazing Saddles. He wrote Springtime for Hitler. Mm-hmm. He wrote High Anxiety. Guy's got talent. Yeah. The, uh, He's going places. I also love, I mean, I like John, John Carpenter's music. I love it for Assault on Precinct 13. And I love it for um, Escape, Escape from, from New, New York. York. Yeah. Like, Great I, theme. I go back to those things. He, yeah, he's a very good writer of themes, I'll say that. Uh, but we can move on, sorry. Uh, number 14, Once Upon a Time in the West, Ennio Morricone. Number 13, The Godfather, Nino Rota. Uh, it's a lot of people's uh, cell phone ringtone. Is it? <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that before. Wow. I um, number, number 12, this is one that I uh, considered voting for if I had submitted a list. Okay. Um, the Social Network, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. But I feel like I honestly, if I were, if I had submitted a list, I would have put Gone Girl on there over this. It's but a I pretty think, great score. I think this one, because it was the first one they did together, yeah. probably sticks with people more. And because it was kind of... It got a lot of attention, yeah. won them an Oscar and so forth. And so the Gone Gone Girl, I'm such a Midwesterner. I always want to say Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Um, <laughs> I think there was less surprise because they'd already done it. But yeah. it is a really great score. Yeah, I was because but they both are. They both are. Yeah, because it was nominated for a, a BP. I was listening to the score for Gone Girl, and it just it it sets such a mood. And so does the Social Network. And then yeah. I, I feel like I would like to go back and listen to the score to Girl with the Dragon Tattoo because I'm sure that is also very uh, impactful. Uh, number eleven, one I didn't have on my supposed list, but now that I see it here, I'm like, shit. Yeah, I should have voted for that. Great. Uh, Taxi Driver. By Bernard Herrmann. Yep. yep. He's on the list three times and, and three of the highest too. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Let's, let's get into, yeah. How, what does it say that we're like, you said he's on the list three times at number 11. This is the first time we're mentioning him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. So here we go. 
we're going into the top 10. We're going to play samples, and some of them are going to be kind of long as we get uh, further towards the top uh, one, two, and three. So do you want me to, I'll say what it is, then we'll play the sample, then we'll talk? Is that how you I kind of it? like the idea of playing the sample before we say what it is. Okay. That was The Lord of the Rings by Howard Shore. Yes. Now, this one... So, I mentioned Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and feeling like I shouldn't put those together. Uh, this one I was okay with because these were always meant to be three movies. And even though uh, Howard Shore certainly does expand on the world, um, 
with each film, you know, like Rohan has a very definitive right. uh, theme to it uh, as well. Um, I, I felt no no qualms about putting them all together as one score. What do you think of that, West? Yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with that either. I, I maybe some of the listeners who are really really huge fans of Lord of the Rings might take issue with it, but uh, I I understand your logic. It mm-hmm. does make a lot of sense, and that's the thing with like with the Star Wars movie. You know, with the first Star Wars film they didn't know if they were going to be able to make more of them. Yeah. So that's, that, that's, I can understand making that exception for that one and not making an exception for another one. Uh, but also, yeah, I'm fairly certain though, that, uh, that Howard Shore was probably working on all three movies kind of at the same time because they were shooting all three movies, like, you yeah. know, back to back. It was all basically one gigantic ball of film production. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, with the Star Wars trilogy, you know, John Williams went away and did some other stuff and then he came back and, and did another Star Wars movie and then went away some more. Whereas I'm pretty sure that Howard Shore was engaged for fairly lengthy periods of time just working on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Because specifically also because if all of these films are basically sort of one giant unified thing it wouldn't have made any sense for him to have just started working on fellowship of the rings and not given any thought to how things are going to develop right. further on down the road. I'm sure that he was probably thinking of the whole thing as sort of one large piece and just breaking it down into three sections. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think you and I have uh, talked West about your view of this score and you do think that it's, it's, I've talked with people that don't like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and there's actually a surprising number of them. Uh, and they talk about they they feel like this the music like telegraphs things too much, and that like every scene is like the big scene and all that. And I don't, having seen the trilogy many times at this point, I, I don't think I agree with that. And I think sometimes the score, sure, it can be big when it needs to be, um, but it can also be very quiet and very melancholy. And oh, yeah. you know, well, one of the the pieces that I was thinking uh, uh, that we should play is actually just one from early on in the fellowship of the rings is just about the one that's for the shire because it's just, yeah. it's a very pleasant and, and lovely pastoral piece of music, yeah. you know, and it's you know only like a two, two and a half minutes and, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely some, some parts where there's kind of like big things going on and there's a, there's definitely a lot of that throughout the trilogy. Yeah. But, and that's one of the reasons why I considered, you know, including that particular piece is that there are also smaller, more intimate moments. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think it's unfair for people to sort of uh, categorize the, the, the film, the music for Lord of the Rings trilogy as just being a bunch of large bombastic, uh, you know, noise. Yeah. I mean the, you know, the music for Gollum, you know, and then there's Gollum's theme, which has uh, lyrics by, I forget the name, but um, it's, uh, and, and I forget who it's performed by, but like, you know, he, I think he understands almost in a Peter and the Wolf kind of way. Every character and every kingdom sort of has, and every part of the land has its own theme and it has its own quality. And like, I go back to that, that Rohan music and there is a, there is a sense of like nobility, but a lot, but a lost nobility. Like this kingdom is not what it used to be. Yeah. And so there is a, there's a sadness there in the midst of heroism. Um, and that Shire music, having gone, having traveled to Hobbiton myself and walking around, 
uh, yeah, you're hard pressed to not hear that in your head <laughs> as you're walking around and be like, this is amazing. You know? I'm surprised they didn't have it pumping out of speakers buried right. in the ground. It feels like they probably should have, yes. Um, but also, because those movies are, I mean, they were you know, originally upon their release, they were spaced a year apart. They're giant movies filled with characters and incident. There's a lot to keep track of, and mm-hmm. the music can help you with that. Yeah. So that's that's another thing that music can do by providing right. yeah. themes for people and for places and stuff like that. Then when that theme comes up, that maybe you maybe you'll you'll hear it and you'll make that connection, you know, in the forefront of your mind. But maybe it'll just be something that in, in the back of your mind that will help you in a subliminal manner. Yeah. But yeah. that's one of the things that film music can do, and that's definitely something that a, f- a film trilogy like this needed. And it just—it's a stupendous achievement for any composer to be able to come up with almost three hours of music for three different films over the course of you know a couple of years, and uh, and not that, feel repetitive. Yeah, and the fact that Howard Shore was able to pull it off at all, uh, I think, is 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 amazing. I think yeah, that's a great point about different themes and how that and, and that sort of that's a guy who has use. done a lot of great work over the years, and you'll notice. I mean, he's one of the people who you know. There's plenty of composers who only appeared on this list once, and, yeah. and he is one of them. But I mean, it's a pretty goddamn big one. Yeah. But the thing <laughs> yeah. is, is that you know he's done. I, I think of some of the other scores that he's done over, over the years, and there's some really great stuff. Uh, you know, the, definitely plenty of the work that he's done for uh, uh, David Cronenberg, like mm-hmm. the, the Fly, is a fantastic score. Yeah. Uh, his his uh, the Cronenberg's Crash, not the other one. Uh, I mean, and that's a really intriguing score too, because it's largely scored for like six electric guitars and some strings. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's it works so well within the context of the film, which is about a bunch of freaky people who love uh, car crashes. Uh, you know, so that just that, that, that interesting choice of, of metallic instrumentation like that, you know, per, uh, along with a string section, it's, it's, in, it's incredibly uh, evocative and, and, and intriguing. Uh, he did the score for the silence of the lambs, which is absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. He did, you know, a couple of uh, David Fincher films. I thought that panic room, was a really great sort of uh, pastiche of Bernard Herrmann. And then his score for Seven, which I think is just uh, incredibly overlooked. Uh, I mean, this, Did anyone vote for it? Uh, no. Wow. Yeah, that's the thing. And, it, and it's, there's a lot going on <laughs> in Seven. There's a lot yeah. about that film that you can recommend. But I think that maybe because there's so much else going on there, I mean, you yeah. know, visually it's just spectacular. There's all kinds of great performances. There's all kinds of grotesque makeup effects, all kinds of stuff going on for you to pay attention to. But the music is always just like this low rolling boil underneath the entire yeah. movie until it's you finally you get to the, dread. until you get to the, the climactic sequence of wrath. And then it just sort of just boils over the top and it just, permeates that last sequence in the movie in a way that is just indelible to me. And that's, that's Howard Shore. There's a whole career going on there. And he did the incidental music for that thing you do, by the way. <laughs> so, there we go. So, I mean, it's got, there's a great career there. He's uh, an amazing body of work. And then this, which is just, it's, it's this such a, a magnificent, enormous achievement. And I've, even and, though, like I say, he's done so much other stuff, you know that you know when the the, the obituary is going to say you know Howard Shore, composer of uh, of Lord of the Rings trilogy, yeah. and I can't think of anybody, himself included, who is going to have a problem with that. And when you think about it, everything that he like every genre that he had worked in, he was going to have to return to for Lord of the Rings. Like, there's nice, pleasant music, there's adventure music, there's horror music. Yep. You know, and every like every almost every um, there's romantic music. Uh, 
almost every emotion that a person can feel is in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And so he has to, he has to, uh, make, he has to compose music that, uh, that speaks to that uh, in any given scene. So uh, we should probably move on. We should. We probably shouldn't spend that long on everyone. Um, so the next let's one. Let's move on to number nine.
That was from Lawrence of Arabia by Pronunciation West. Uh, Maurice Jarre. Maurice Jarre. That is the third one that I listened to uh, in the car. I was actually listening to it on the drive over today. Yeah. It's... I, I love this music so much. Do you, are you a fan? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. yes. I mean, I, uh, the score and the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. When they restored it in 1988, uh, that was, that was a, a big deal. It was like, well, uh, the second day of my temp job at bank of America, I said, I can't come in and they didn't know why, but it's cause I went down to century city to see Lawrence of fucking Arabia. Um, they let me come back the next day though. So I guess I must've had something on the ball. Yeah. It's, uh, obviously it's an incredible film. Uh, it is a, a masterpiece in pretty much every conceivable way. Uh, you know, sadly we just, uh, lost, uh, Omar Sharif. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a shame. Uh, one of the greatest entrances, uh, in the history of cinema. Yeah. You, it's, it's, it's amazing. And the music is, uh, it, it's, it's what you think of when you think of Lawrence of Arabia. You know, you think of the desert vistas and you think of the music, you think of that theme. Yeah. So, which is what we played. Um, and, and, and what we played was that wonderful speaking of entrances, uh, the entrance of the sun, um, <laughs> right. is, uh, because the sun, I don't like to put it this way, so I won't, uh, the sun is a, is like a, a, such a huge factor of the world of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, the, it's going to kill people. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like, so when you see the sunrise and it's built and the music builds as if like, you guys are, are fucking doomed. <laughs> like it's all gonna, but then once it, once it rises, then that beautiful Lawrence of Arabia theme kicks in and it's just, it's like, there's such a, there's a, such a romanticism to it. Like undoubtedly it is how Lawrence views maybe not himself, but how he, how he sees the world, which is well, how like he just sees one that world. Yeah, that's true. Cause that was the thing. I mean, that's, that's why he left England. He just didn't, he just didn't seem like he, he didn't feel like he fit in there. Yeah. And thing is, he didn't fit in in Arabia either. Yeah. <laughs> but he, unfortunately he found that out kind of the hard way. Yeah. That's, that's always going to, the, the weird thing about Lawrence of Arabia is that it's, you know, there's the, yeah, the, 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 the theme is very sweeping and, and majestic. There's not a lot of heroism in it though. And it's, and it, and it makes sense because Lawrence was not really very heroic, certainly not in the yeah. traditional sense of the, of, of the term, because really it's a guy who dreamed of, being heroic and doing big things. And then he got his chance and like, Oh shit, I'm completely over my head. Yeah. And then he went through anyway, because that's what you have to do. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's, there was no, there was no chance to turn around and just run. So one of my favorite things about the film, and I realized that, you know, we're talking more about the film than the music itself, but, um, can't have one without the other. That's true. (laughs) Like love and marriage, love and a marriage. Um, is that, Lawrence Arabia is such a wonderful epic and there, and there's such a sense of confidence in how it is made that I think a lot of people fail to recognize that who is Lawrence? I mean, they even say it. There's a part where someone says, who are you? Mm-hmm. And he just stares at them. Um, like what drives him? Nobody really knows. And I'm not saying that's a flaw. I think that's absolutely intended that he is just a complete enigma. And in the, and the idea that, there's a character who's enigmatic and whose motivations you don't completely understand at the heart of a huge epic, I think is a, a stroke of, I think genuine genius. Um, and, and the music again, yeah, I think it's, it shows you how he views this world, which is so romantic and so, so 
again, yeah, sweeping. We keep saying sweeping, but uh, I don't know. It's yeah, it's a it's a wonderful score. And the thing also is that because there's another instance where I think there might be some people out there who will be tempted to say, well, but there's another one where everybody knows the theme, and then what about the rest of it? And nobody knows the rest of it. Well, I know the rest of it. And, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the thing is, yeah, there is that theme, but there is other stuff too. I mean, there's a great little military march, and then there's mm-hmm. there's, uh, there's there's another theme that that sort of pops up in the beginning of the film. it's something that sounds very british yeah and so there's there's all there is more to the film than just the theme or on the other hand in contrast i can't remember anything of the music from dr Zhivago except for laura's theme yeah <laughs> it's a good theme yeah, yeah it is it's, yeah. It's, it's up there but all right uh should we move on yes absolutely so let's move on to number eight That was, as I'm sure you know, yes, from Raiders of the Lost Ark by John Williams. Yes, Have West, West go. <laughs> yeah, well, there again, that's, this is one that uh, I wrote about for the website, and uh, I, I had a lot to say, particularly about one specific piece of music. So mm-hmm. you can check that out there. Um, but as far as the score overall, I think it's it's just. It's an incredible piece of work. Uh, and that's the one that I was referring to that uh, did not win the Academy Award in 1981 for Best Original Score because he lost out to Vangelis for like three fucking minutes of music. <laughs> and, and it just shouldn't have happened. It should not have happened. You, yeah. you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and you hear that music. I mean, it's just, it's indelible. You know, you, and, uh, from the very first time I saw it, I mean, I, we, we went to see it at the, the Chinese theater when it came out mm-hmm. in June of 1981 and me and my brother sitting in the front row and everybody's just blown away by this movie. It's just, yeah. it's a blast. And, 
and the music is part of that. I mean, we all we all stayed for the end credits, you know, and just yeah. everybody stayed and listened to the music. And when it was over, we all applauded, you know, yeah. so we we're watching a live performance of some kind. Uh, because and that's one of those things that uh, a filmmaker particularly like Steven Spielberg clearly he appreciates the importance and the power of music yes and also you have the fact that he has collaborated almost exclusively with John Williams for the last 41 years yeah and there's there's only two instances so far where you know the, he, he has not been involved because he wasn't involved with uh, the color purple in 1985 mm-hmm. and uh, I don't I, I don't know what happened when he got sick or something like that and so he's oh he's not- a racist did you not know that <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. <laughs> but uh, he's he's not working on Bridge of Spies, so really, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, something I I don't know what it is. They said some health issue or something like that. And huh. I mean, as far as I know, I, I I'm guessing his work on on the next upcoming Star Wars film is complete. But yeah, as far assume. as Bridge of Spies, now, Thomas Newman is uh, stepping in to uh, to fill John Williams' shoes. So I'm, it's only, sh- I'm only, sure he'll do a good job, but at yeah, the same time... He's, it's, a, he's a great composer, but still, it's like the second time in 41 years that John Williams has not been involved in a Steven Spielberg film, and that's it's kind of weird. <laughs> I know, it just it feels... <laughs> feels gross. And, um, but, but this film is one of those reasons why you know we... we recognize that there is such a strong connection between those two guys because this i mean you know earlier there was there was et and et is uh, also an incredible melding of uh, of film and visuals and and music and particularly that like the last 15 20 minutes of et i mean it's basically like a symphony and then there's some there's some aliens and stuff in spaceships uh, that you can look at while you're listening to it <laughs> <laughs> but in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's just all kinds of great, there's one great set piece after another, and each one has a, a fantastic piece of music to go along with it. Yeah, yeah I think people with Raiders, undoubtedly they think of the theme first, and it's a, an amazing theme. Yeah. But like, the love the, the love theme with him yep. and Marion is wonderful it's 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 very subtle and it's very it's it's, it's not romantic that subtle, actually it's very melodramatic and very, it's it's it, it befitting like a warner brothers melodrama of the late 1930s it would it's exactly like something that mm-hmm. a guy like max steiner would come up with to, for like a big over-the-top dramatic moment and because that's exactly what they're reaching for in this movie i think of it i i think of it maybe it's in maybe, com- in maybe comparatively the the yeah score i think of it as small you know um but i guess i guess there is definitely a melodrama to it um and then the scene with you know with the face melting like that part is is really terrifying that music is terrifying when i and it's when i ride uh the indiana jones ride at disneyland uh when things go bad for you uh in the ride uh they play that music and you know the kid in me that wa- that grew up watching this movie like oh shit <laughs> like i know things that's the face melting music i know that <laughs> yeah um, and so uh, we should probably uh, let's move on to number seven.
that was the second appearance of Bernard Herman <laughs> out of three on this yes. list. It was Vertigo. Indeed it was. <laughs> now, here, right. is, here is another instance of uh, a film that absolutely cannot do without its score. Yeah. It just wouldn't be as effective because in particular, there are considerable passages in this film where it's just music and people walking around and looking at each other and following each other and that's it. So, and I, this is something that I, I, I believe I've mentioned this to somebody on Twitter at some point. I'll go ahead and say it here that I think Hitchcock would not have been emboldened to make a film like Vertigo the way he did if he didn't have a composer as strong as Bernard Herrmann in his corner. Hmm. Because of all of those those long stretches of film where it's just visuals and music, there's no dialogue. There's there's not a whole lot really in the way of action. It's just a lot of contemplative uh, uh, you know notions and longing looks and things like that. Bernard Herrmann is carrying that on his shoulders, and he is of course he's up to the task because he's one of the, as far as film yeah. uh, music goes, he's one of the best that ever was. So. Just from the you know the brilliant opening uh, uh, sequence, and that's that's another thing that you don't even get nowadays. You know, a film taking like three and a half minutes of yeah. just music and opening titles to, to to set the mood, and and he seizes on that opportunity. You know, and, and he has always done that every time that Hitchcock has given him the opportunity. It's just you know, here take the first couple of minutes and just set the scene for everybody, and he do, always does it so magnificently. You know, he did it with this film, he did it fantastically with North by Northwest. Uh, he's going to do it again, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this this film uh, and then the particular also the uh, the the love theme mm-hmm. that comes up. I mean, it's 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 so beautiful and epic, but it also has some fantastic tragic quality to it yeah. that it absolutely needs. Uh, you know, if you've seen the film, you know why. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and when I think of, we keep going back to the, to like themes and I guess looking at this list, uh, like the top 50, I'd say the vast majority of these movies have a definitive theme. Uh, and that's probably what people remember first. And then hopefully we'll think about, uh, the, just the, more nuanced uh, and incidental parts of the score as well. Uh, But when I think of the theme for Vertigo, it it captures and informs uh, the spirit of that film so much. It just, you feel uneasy and you feel parent. It's the, it's the, it's the music of par. It's the theme of paranoia and just feeling like, I don't know what's going on. And this is very, this is very creepy to me. And, uh, and that play and that theme plays in the first couple minutes, right? Oh yeah, yeah, and, it's in there. You know, when you hear that, I remember when I saw Vertigo for the first time, and just like you hear that music, and you're thinking like, "Holy shit, man! Like, what am I, what am I in for?" <laughs> uh, and then you're in for Vertigo, as it turns out, uh, the the best film of all time, according to Sight and Sound. Um, uh, but yeah, we can uh, we can probably move on to our our number six. Number six.
that again i'm sure you know mm-hmm. was from the third man by anton Karras. indeed now which i know that is a, is a is a this was one that it was on my top 10 i was rooting for it i liked the idea and for a while it was in the top three getting pretty close to number two and then number one and then it it dropped to number six which kind of bummed me out i was rooting for it because i really wanted our uh I wanted our <laughs> this sounds super shitty. I apologize everybody. Like I wanted our our list to top out with the third man theme cuz like yeah, we're fucking awesome. You know, <laughs> we're we're movie people, you know. And uh, while I can't argue it's with any 10. of the yeah. I can't argue with any of the top uh 5, uh specifically I'd say the top 4. Um the uh oh, throwing shade. That's right. Um <laughs> Yeah, I can't argue with the third man theme, but I feel like this is an instance where the music would appear to go against the vibe of the film. But in doing so, it makes everything seem much more. I know what you mean, because the like the music is like Harry Lime. Exactly. It's kind of uh, giddy. It's upbeat. Yeah. You know? uh, even though yeah. it's about like. Well, the third really man, the theme is. But then there's other music that is a little mm-hmm. more, you know, uh, melancholy and so forth. But also, uh, I think that what's really fascinating about it, it again, it is another instance of a score that is purely on one instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, Anton Karras performed it on the zither, which, you know, I don't have access to one of those, so I couldn't even describe it to you at this point, but, uh, it's all just him playing that one instrument. And I've never even been to Vienna. Mm-hmm. And yet because of this movie, I, I associate zither music with Vienna. Yeah. Oh, if you I, go there, I, it's everywhere. I this can't think is, of anything else. It's almost sacrilegious for me to even bring this up. But in the movie Triple X, starring Vin Diesel, okay. do you remember that? I didn't see it. Oh, okay. So there's a part in Vienna, and he goes into a nightclub, and it, the music is like a, a like a techno remix oh, of the theme. Good for them. You know <laughs> yeah. what? Good for them. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, but it's so weird that you, you, to... Because of this movie, there's the score that I, I identify the score so strongly with the location where the story is set. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a kind of a tribute to the music in a way. It's very atmospheric and it, it really it really does add to the proceedings in in a very specific way. Because, yeah, it does. Uh, there, there is a certain sense that the, the music is sort of just playing somewhere outside. Yeah. You know, because uh-huh. it's like, wait, wait, right. this, this isn't fun. Why are you playing this? <laughs> But uh, that's one of the things that well, one of my favorite things in the opening of the film where, you know, the, it, it's Carol Reed who's doing the uh, the opening narration. You know, I never knew mm-hmm. the the old, uh, you know, before the war with its Strauss waltzes, its glamour and easy charm. And, and then, well, we the the talking about we, I really knew it in the, the classic period of the black market. You know, and and, and his, all this is this footage of, you know, what he's talking about is going on while he's talking about it. You know, we'd run anything in those days if people wanted it enough and had the money to pay. Now, of course, a situation like that does tempt amateurs, but, and then you see a shot of a corpse floating, you know, face down in the river, and then he yeah. says, well, you know, they can't stay the course like a professional. Like, what the hell? And it's like, when you get to that point, it's like, okay, well, uh, now we're in for a very different ride than I thought we were taking, and, yeah. and so let's go with that. But you know, the music just keeps on with that attitude. It's like, hey, hey, you know, whatever's going on, oh, well, people dead, okay, whatever, uh, we're just playing. You know, it's like, it reminds me of that joke that Steve Martin does about, you know, how playing the banjo, you know, they, playing the banjo makes everything sound better. You can't be unhappy when you're playing the banjo. You can't go, oh, death and grief and sorrow. <laughs> 
red murder. <laughs> because you can't do it because it's it's just you know just such a happy you know sounding instrument. So that that weird sort of uh, juxtaposition of the, the the music with some of this incredible you know classic imagery. I mean, I just saw it. They. Uh, they restored it, whoever they are, uh, recently, and it was playing over at the New Art Theater. It was like held over for a week, and I, I got to see it when I was uh, I had a week off, and I went down there and got to see it on the big screen again. And oh, holy smokes! It's just it's it's great anywhere you can see it. I mean, I guess if you have to watch it on an iPod, go ahead and watch it on an iPod, and you'll still enjoy it. But on a big screen, it's just mm, fantastic. You saw the restoration, right? I did, and it was uh, beautiful. And then I wrote a review. Then uh, my computer shut off, and I lost it. Ew. <laughs> really? Did you know that? Did I tell you that? Well, because there's still the reason I gave you a funny look is because there's still uh, like a draft on yeah. the Battleship Retention like backend. Yeah, there's like there's like three paragraphs, and then I wrote an additional ten, and then my computer shut off, and it's gone completely, and I couldn't restore it. I'm, and and part you couldn't of the restore sh- it the way they restored exactly. The movie. <laughs> exactly. Oh, if only there was. Well, maybe a- you should call them. Maybe they can do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's just, but it is, it's. It, David, I think you're. I think you're right. It's like the music, and and just the tone of the film in general. It's as though it just the whole thing is told by Harry Lime, um, who's yep. just like, hey, look, you can't win them all. You <laughs> well, know, that's, that's part of the yeah the the whole attitude that that permeates the film. I mean, the characters have it themselves. It's, it's just that look, this is what's going on. You know, we're dealing with it. And yeah. the only person really who seemingly can't deal with it is Holly Martins. Yeah. You know, and, and that's part of what they were trying to do with the movie is, is that they were just sort of a, you know, sort of a comment on, you know, Americans coming into Europe in world war two. And it's like, you know, look, you know, all you Americans back home, you don't have to de- you didn't have to deal with this. They didn't. And that's, that's the thing is that all the stuff that was going on in, in all over Europe, those stuff being bombed out and, and people's lives being destroyed and people being killed by, you know, all this, this, this warfare and stuff like that. Yeah. For the most part, Americans didn't have to deal with that yeah. in world war two. You know, yeah. you never had to, you know, get up in the morning and go to work or go to the store and then you come home and find a smoking crater where your house used to be. That happened over there. Right? Yeah. And they sort of learned to deal with that. They sort of learned to absorb the horrors of war. But then, you know, this this naive American comes in with his, you know, goofy, uh, you know, American attitudes and he just he's just completely appalled by what's going on, but he's the only one. Yeah. Everybody else is like, "Well, look, this is what we're doing." Well, yeah. what, what, I think <laughs> The Third Man would be a good movie to show to like uh, a teenager that you're trying to convince to watch older movies because I think young people always think that they invented cynicism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I think that would be a great one to well, just open people's eyes. That and then various film noir, which I guess this could count as film noir to a certain extent. It often gets uh, lumped in with that. Yeah. Let's move on to the one that Tyler thinks doesn't deserve to be on the list. Number five. <laughs> at, at all. <laughs> Anywhere in there. Number five. Thank you. 
That was from There Will Be Blood by Johnny Greenwood. Magnificent yeah. score. It yeah. still is one of like the the most breathtakingly uh, daring and amazing scores that I have heard in the last 10 years. Uh, Tyler doesn't I, like it. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's pretty good. <laughs> now, this would have this would this is on my truncated list that I never submitted. What is it that you? Uh, that, uh, what are your reservations about it? My reservations that I don't think it's better than the Third Man, <laughs> and I don't think it's better than Vertigo or Lawrence of Arabia. Okay, like, I see what you're saying. It, that's basically yeah. It. Maybe maybe it's not top ten material, but I mean it's definitely on my top fifty list somewhere. Sure. Uh, um, and like I said, I mean I I meant every word. I mean, it's it was so unlike what other people were doing in film scores, you know, in, in recent times. And it's just, it was an approach that I completely did not expect. And not, not just because it was Johnny Greenwood. I was aware that Johnny Greenwood is, you know, a guy in Radiohead and I think Radiohead's good and all that. Uh, I, I didn't have really any expectations from him, but I had certain expectations from Paul Thomas Anderson. I knew that, you know, he's a guy who makes great movies and he's one of the best American filmmakers that we have today. And so, I, it, it's not like he's going to hire, you know, any old dumbass off the street, and we're going to end up with some some crappy music. But I just had no idea, not only that Johnny Greenwood was capable of composing that sort of thing, but that that was the sort of thing that Paul Thomas Anderson wanted in this movie, mm. because it it seems counterintuitive. It doesn't seem like the kind of music that should be in this sort of period film, right? And yet, uh, I can't imagine the film without it. Yeah. I remember reading, I guess, back in 2007, reading, like, you know, Pitchfork or other, like, you know, rock, you know, indie, indie music blogs, uh, where they're, I think it was the Popcorn Superhead Receiver, I think that song, or that track or whatever, was, like, released, you know, on the internet before the movie, and so it was like, oh, here, part of some of Johnny Greenwood's score for The Healthy Blood, and I listened to it, and, like, like, just pure like cognitive dissonance like this this is the music for a movie that's coming out like uh yeah it definitely got me more excited for the movie yeah and they only they they only used like a a couple of bits of that in the score for the film but apparently that was enough for the uh, the academy to say that no this is disqualified which i thought was one of the biggest travesties of of all time it was just ridiculous and then and again see this is the thing that you you see this this i i chalk it up to hypocrisy i think it's because it was a rock a rock guy that mm-hmm. they were just they just decided to just go ahead and dismiss him you know i mean danny elfman should have received at least a nomination for batman it didn't happen yeah you know but because the thing is uh yeah just like a couple of minutes here and there uh from this piece that he did popcorn superhead receiver which had never even been commercially released until after the film came out but on the basis of that uh the the academy said well this is disqualified as an original score meanwhile um, in 2001 or two, I think it was two, uh, you know, the, the film, the hours, uh-huh. which had an Oscar dominated score for Philip glass. And I, I wrote to you about this right. because there was a point where the hours was, uh, it was on the list and eventually it did, it, it dropped out because some other stuff got more votes, I guess. But I told you mm. that I recommended that that film and I, and look, everybody, like, like he said, uh, Philip glass is my favorite living composer. Okay. Uh, and I love the score for the hours. But there are three bits in that score that come from other things. And I pointed that out to you, and I said that on that yeah. basis, this should be disqualified. You know, and in the end, it didn't have to happen because it dropped off the list on its own anyway. But that score got an, uh, an Oscar nomination. 
Yeah. So, you know. And that's by Philip Glass. Philip Glass. So that was. So clearly, you know, I guess Philip Glass is deserving of respect, but Johnny Greenwood, you know, is just some scruffy guy who plays guitar with a fucking band. So, you know, the hell with him. Right. And that's just, it's nonsense. Because I guess the, the, the score for There Will Be Blood is just, it's, it's jaw dropping. Yeah. I, I I love just listening to it on its own. I don't I don't even need the movie. And well, the movie is great. And it's just like it's one more element of a movie that is so often counterintuitive uh, to what that movie, what you think it should be or what it could be. And uh, and it's again, it just I would say I would say underscores, but it's the score, so it uh, it merely scores. Yeah. Um, and especially, I, I, especially that first twenty minutes uh, yeah. is so fascinating. But also, the scene where the oil rig catches fire yeah. is that you talk about listening to it on its own. I feel like if I were like driving and that came on, I would have to pull over. <laughs> like I don't think I could handle it. You either have to pull over or go one hundred and twenty miles <laughs> yeah, an hour. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Should we move on? Uh, yes, we are now in the top five. I believe. Right. That was the top. Oh, that five. was top five. That was That's number right. five. So we are moving on to number four. That 
the final appearance on the list by Ennio Morricone. That is from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Indeed. Uh, I don't know what we just played. What was it? We played the basically the theme to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Okay. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Do, do you know it? <laughs> uh, do I? Know, I know the movie. Do you know the theme to? How, the how's it go? Which one is the theme? Uh. Okay, that one. <laughs> there right. you go. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Yeah, that's um. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, and you got it now, David. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ennio Morricone has composed quite literally the score for every third movie you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> I mean, you go and look at his IMDb page, just as long as your fucking arm, it's, it's insane how much work he has done. And, uh, and he's, he's still working. He's touring in Europe right now. Uh, I still have my fingers crossed that he's going to come over here to the United States and he was supposed and, to come here and then he, he got yeah, sick. That was the thing. I, I had tickets for that and no, he, they, he crapped out. So he had to go for back surgery. So I'm hoping, yeah, maybe, maybe next year there's, there's rumblings that he'll, he'll come next year and make good but um there's a lot of stuff that this guy has done that uh, is is amazing work and this is probably the most iconic of his scores uh it's the, the one that most people are familiar with even if they haven't seen any of the dollars trilogy yeah they're they're familiar with that piece of music uh, or you know fans of metallica are, are familiar <laughs> with some of the music because that, that's what i was just looking up because i couldn't remember the name of it but it's yeah, the, the, ex- the ecstasy of gold the ecstasy of gold uh, is played before every metallica concert yeah they, and hmm. and then uh, so and that's an also an amazing piece of music and then almost like five minutes after that there's another piece of music that's called the trio which is basically just the music that accompanies that final standoff between the three mm-hmm. guys that just builds and builds and builds and it's just yeah. ridiculously operatic and all this music was composed before uh, Morricone ever laid eyes on the film because that's just yeah. the way that uh, that he and uh, Sergio Leone worked you know Leone said no uh, I'm making a movie I need some music and Marconi <laughs> would make some music and say here you go and then he would uh, Leone would he play the, the music he didn't have the genre or the story and he, <laughs> he let the music dictate it Leone would play the music on the set yeah so you know whatever you know was oftentimes when you're whatever it is you're seeing on the screen and you're hearing this fantastic music you should know that the actors were probably listening to it as well at the same time <laughs> yeah and it's uh when I think of, okay, this is going to sound insulting, and I don't mean for it to. The thing about Mor- Morricone, and, and there are plenty of people that know a lot more about him than, than I do, but anytime I hear his score, again, this is going to sound negative. It's almost like the score is saying, look at me! <laughs> uh, and again, like... Which is to say, it is it is not going to fade into the background. Like it is big, it is heightened. Uh, whether it be, you know, good, the bad, and the ugly, or um, one of my favorite scores uh, of all time, and certainly my fa- one of my favorite themes of all time um, is from the Untouchables. Yeah, which I think is like there's just like this this pulse pounding quality to it. Like it is it is music that just he makes big music for movies with like characters with big personalities and he makes really great music for iconic scenes and you know, good. And yeah, thinking of like that, that scene with the three characters and just waiting, waiting, waiting and just building, building, building to the point where it almost becomes comical, except the music just has you every step of the way. And you're just like, 
I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but but that's the other thing is like it's the realization like, yeah, once this gunfight happens, it's going to be done in about, oh, four seconds at most. So they're so we're really going to need that build up, <laughs> you know. But I think also what might be part of the reason why, you know, you feel that way about Morricone's music is that is is the fact that Leone does let him take the stage. Yeah. You know, because like I said, he goes off and writes the music before Leone has even shot any of the film. And so Leone is going to, he cuts to that music. Yeah. Whereas, you know, on the other, if, if it was the other way around, if Leone was just like going out and shooting the film, it's like, okay, well now this is how I want this, yeah. this final showdown to take place. Here, Ennio, uh, score this. You have this amount of time and this is what's happening. Go ahead and do that. But instead, if it's the other way around, well, Yeah. Any composer you know, with the sizable enough ego, and he's got one, he's just going to go, well, okay, then uh, this is what I'm going to do. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> put put this to, to some visuals or something. That's, that's what happens. If you have to. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, a black screen, and it, people still get the impact of the, of the music, um, and, it is, and it is a marvelous score. It, again, I feel like I was, I was speaking... <laughs> ill when i say like look at me like it just sounds like a, a kid desperate for attention it's not that it's just that like certainly when working with with leon it's just like the music plays as big a part as some of the, as some of the visuals and maybe even some characters yeah all right uh should we move on sure we're at the top three now top three this is number three
That was from Jaws by John Williams. I bet you didn't guess. Yeah. I bet no one guessed what that one was. Yeah, yeah, it's... uh, Okay, so... Now that we're in the top three, it almost feels like anything we have to say is unnecessary, right? Uh, because it's all been said before. But I do love the score of Jaws. It is the I, I submitted that one as well, um, and it's so much more than just the two notes uh, played over and uh-huh. over, sometimes slower, sometimes quicker. Uh, it's so much more than that. But I think the genius comes in those two notes. Um, he does some, you know, he does some amazing things. Uh, I I was listening to the score last night and maybe I'm only saying this because I know the score only in terms of the movie, but I feel like he does a good job of approximating underwater, like his use of, I would assume a harp. Yeah. Um, there's a harp in there and just like, you just in listening to the music, I can tell when, okay, we're now on land, but now, and now we're at sea, but now we're underwater. And I feel like that's a fascinating, a fascinating idea. Um, but then those two notes and just the simplicity of it and just the, the unrelenting, I I almost wonder if he, he looked at that Hooper line where it's like an end, a perfect engine an eating machine. He's like an engine, a machine, got it like no sympathy no you know no motive no premeditation it's just a machine that swims and eats and makes little sharks and that's it so it's unrelenting and so i will i will create something that is primal and unrelenting and so i think uh, there was an influence from uh, bernard herman as well mm mm-hmm which I was something that we'll, we'll come to, but, um, spoilers, but yeah, there's, there's like, the, the, yeah, everybody knows the, you know, the two notes, yeah. you know, that it's become a cliche, yeah. but there is other stuff in the, the, oh, sure. you know, when they're out there on the water and, and suddenly it becomes like high adventure time. Yeah. And it's just it's like, you know, yeah. It, yeah, it's just like adventure on the high seas. And there's, there's this really great sort of almost swashbuckly type music to accompany that, that, you know, sort of reminds me of, of some of corn gold stuff, like in the Seahawk and things like that. Uh, and that's, that's great stuff. Uh, and then the, the, the scene where, you know, you have the, the classic monologue about the Indianapolis. Yeah. I mean, there, there is music there. I mean, and maybe, maybe you, you don't even hear it because you're just so engrossed in, in, you know, what Robert Shaw is saying, but there is music that's mm-hmm. underscoring that. And, and it's, it's really eerie and evocative and it, it suits the scene to a T. Yeah. It's, uh, and that won the Oscar for best score that yes. year. Um, so I was watching, uh, on my Blu-ray of Jaws, they, f- they have that documentary, The Shark is Still Working. Yeah, finally. I've been hearing about that documentary <laughs> for, for years. Yeah. It's like, narrated by, it? it's narrated by Roy Scheider, if that's any indication how long they've been working on wow. this thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. and so, and they, t- and it's such an in-depth documentary, uh, and they talk about so many aspects of the film, even the, the cover art, you know, um, of the shark, you know, coming up into the, to attack the girl. Um, but it talks about the impact of the, the music and specifically the theme. And they told this story that in some, uh, in, on some beaches in, I think Australia, um, you know, cause there are shark warnings and, literally rather than uh having someone announce get out of the water there's a shark they play the theme and people leave quicker 
there are people like, I don't want to like the, the first off, they know what it means. Oh, a shark. Well, I don't want a shark. But by playing that theme, it's like, well, I know what a shark means. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be Robert Shaw. No, thank <laughs> I don't, you. I don't get Robert Shaw over here. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get shot up. Um, and, uh, and so like, and it's just, I can't think of any other, whether it be a song or uh, or a piece of score where all you all you have to go is da da that's it those two notes and people know exactly what you are what you're doing I remember seeing an interview with Steven Spielberg and talk, him talking about John Williams like playing like showing him the music and just like on a piano and yeah. like no you have to trust me because it was just yeah. like ding 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 yeah. like it didn't have the yeah. the weight of what we hear yeah. well, now. I'm paying you for this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah he first thought it was a joke and uh and i do feel like um and probably any movie in any of the films in our top 10 could probably be uh described this way but this one and i would say the number two movie are such that the music is so imperative that the movies would be they they might they might literally not have the same cultural impact if not for the music and i think jaws is is an example of that uh well that's a good way to move on to number two so let's do it number two That was from Psycho, the third and final appearance by Bernard Herrmann. And I'm really glad, Wes, that you mentioned um, uh, Bernard Herrmann in relation to Jaws, because uh, I don't know that I ever, like, in the front of my brain ever made that connection before, but they are uh, mm-hmm. clearly they're very similar. Uh, yeah. Th- th- those, those moments that we remember, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know, Williams is 
directly stealing anything or anything like that. But uh, there's, I, was, there's, I wasn't making any accusations. No. <laughs> I wasn't pointing fingers. But there's there's such a, a tremendous influence there. We, uh, clearly, there are moments in in the Spielberg film that could be categorized as Hitchcockian. Yeah, you know, uh, and just the the ability to to you know. For, uh, on the part of the, the filmmaker, not the composer, to to sort of play on uh, the audience and just sort of manipulate them. Mm-hmm. And, and Spielberg has that, and Hitchcock had that. And both of them, uh, at least for a while, in the case of Hitchcock, had uh, a very strong composer that they could collaborate with who was able to, you know, to, to read them properly and, and give each film what it needed. Yeah. So... And Psycho is definitely, you know, Vertigo obviously is a great example of that. And Psycho is, is in some ways, to my way of thinking, I think it's a, it's an even better example, because purely because of a the just the, the limitations that Herman set for himself mm-hmm. was that the, the the score is just purely for a string section. There is nothing else in the film. All it is is a string section and what he does with it. And he can, and he does so many things with it. Mm-hmm. Including one thing that probably a lot of people didn't even think you could do until he did it, <laughs> and, and I'm referring specifically to the to the shower sequence, mm-hmm, right. which wasn't even supposed to have any music. Yeah, that's the thing that's really amazing is that you know Hitchcock said no, no, we don't need anything here. Uh, I got it, and Herman said no, I don't think you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and he came up with something, and what he came up with is just it, it's it's immortal. You know, yeah. it's you know cockroaches are going to be humming that music long after the rest of us are gone. Uh, it, it's one of the most indelible moments in all of cinema history. And half of it is the visual element, but the other half of it is the music. Yeah. The music sells it. Well, yeah. that, that's the opening. The opening of psycho mm-hmm. is just the opening shot. It's like an aerial shot, right? The yeah. beginning. And that opening music, it feels like if I'm trying to put myself in the mind of, uh, audiences at the time, you know, yeah. going to see a uh, sort of a tawdry horror movie, I guess. But from the opening, very opening, you know, like you're in the hands of professionals. Like this is a movie, movie, uh, and, and uh, everything is everything's taken care of for you. Don't yeah. <laughs> don't underestimate anything yeah. that's going to happen here. You're in good hands. They're yeah. malevolent, <laughs> right. but they're good. Right. You know, they're they're very confident in uh, terrifying you, and uh, yeah, and that's something that um, it took me a long time to figure out. And I'm sure I probably didn't even figure it out. I'm sure I probably just heard it somewhere that like that Bernard Herrmann looked at the stripped down way that Hitchcock made the film and thought, well, certainly we can't have a super ornate score because that would, that it's just not right for this film. So I will limit myself as well. And it's, you know, incredibly effective. And, you know, I feel like psycho and, and jaws are two instances where like the music it doesn't it's not like they make the film but they they elevate it and so and i mentioned that with jaws all you need is da and you know and people know exactly what you're talking about with psycho all you got to go all you have to do is like we 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 like you, <laughs> you do three of them and people know exactly what you're referencing um but the but the music is so much more than just that scene that is the scene people think about and understandably so but like the theme from psycho i think is really great yeah just the the opening minute and a half with mm-hmm. the, the credits with the incredible graphics by by Saul Bass i mean yeah. that once again like i said before this is something hitchcock just 
gives Bernard Herrmann the, the, the floor and lets him set the stage and he yeah. sets the mood and he sets it so well. You just know from, you know, from the opening notes that yes, something bad is going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. You're just going to have to sit there and take it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you're going to like it. And, and then there's also, also you know, like the suspenseful music for, you know, when, you know, Marion's kind of trying to figure out what she's going to do. And she's, you know, obviously she's doing the wrong thing. And, uh, the really fantastic music in the scene between her and Norman Bates when mm-hmm. all of us, yeah, everything just, there's, there's no music until the point where he just sort of goes off the rails a little bit talking about his mother and why he doesn't put her away. And there, Herman was really giving you a clue into how everything is just going to go south pretty quick and this guy is going to be the agent of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a marvelous score. It's, one thing that I have enjoyed as a function of doing this list is going in and listening to these again and just realizing how, uh, you know, before we actually get to number one, here's a question. Okay. Uh, there, so I own a number of movie scores, probably if I had to guess, not as many as you own West. Um, but I would find myself listening to a score and then being f- occasionally frustrated when I would be listening to it on its own because there's like, there's like a peak and I'm like, okay, something clearly happened there. And because I'm not seeing it and I'm not hearing dialogue, I don't yeah. completely remember what it is. And so it's just like, and for, and I was kind of taken out of the music, even though, well, the music was only ever meant to be with this movie. And so my question is, uh, when listening to the score on its own, uh, and then you hear a little something that was clearly meant to coincide with a, a visual cue, uh, is that almost a mark against it? Uh, when you, when you listen back to it or are you able to just say like, well, you know, it's, it wasn't meant to be listened to the way I am listening to it now. The latter. Okay. It's made, it was made for the movie. Okay. So that's fine with me. Okay. What he said. Okay. Good. Just, (laughs) just putting that out there. Um, so, uh, okay. I will say, all right. Uh, I told Wes this, I did not tell you this, David. Um, and I'm telling the listener as well. Uh, the, the track we'll be listening to for number one is four tracks that I put together. It's several minutes long. Okay. Because this is the best, according to you, the listener, this is the best uh, movie score of all time. So I really want to take some time to get to, right. get to know it. Settle in. Here's number one. Number one.
there we go. All right. That was it. That was it. Goodbye. Everybody. All right. But no, that was, uh, of course, Star Wars by John Williams. Indeed. Now, West, you said that uh, as uh, as I kept uh, uh, updating you with the the top ten, um, and at one point Jaws was number one, at one point Psycho was number one, and then Star Wars, and you said that you were rooting for Star Wars to to win out. Yeah. Uh, out of those three, yeah. Yeah. Is that because you don't like? The, the psycho score or the ju- like, like it's been well established i hate that there will be blood score so i have to assume you don't care for the jaws score it's like yes we get it it's a shark uh you know but star wars that's the one you like uh, that's the one i like best out of those out of those three okay. out of uh, a lot of those other ones too well, frankly. what's so but um what's so great about it <laughs> This is what I'm going to be for the rest of the episode. You're welcome. <laughs> Luckily, there's not that much left. No, but this is this is exactly what I was referring to uh, when I was talking earlier about how you know some things you know sort of fall out of out of favor and then they get sort of picked up again. And that's basically kind of what happened here is that that kind of film scoring that was really popular in the 30s and 40s and maybe a little bit into the 50s uh, it was practiced in the, the sort of golden age of Hollywood by guys like Miklos Roja and uh, Max Steiner and Dimitri Toyamkin and all those cats uh, this is this is that kind of score the kind of score that uh, you know is it's directly influenced by those those scores and that kind of, that style of composition where you have you know various themes and motifs that you can assign to different characters and different situations and places, uh, and this is a film that really sort of needs that because you're dealing with all of this this these alien worlds and stuff that is completely unfamiliar to us. Although you know only on the surface is it unfamiliar to us because mm. obviously there are sort of you know mythological underpinnings that everybody can sort of clue into in one way or another. But the music sort of helps you through that because it harkens back to something that we are familiar with that certainly uh, for my generation as a nine year old going in to see star Wars, I was familiar with it from watching old movies and television. And of course I was familiar with Ben Hur, which is a, a film score that I sort of pair up with star Wars in my mind, because they're very similar in terms of the way that each composer assigns themes and motifs to various things in the film to help you sort of keep uh, keep track of where everything is and who you're supposed to be rooting for and who oh this is the bad guy and all that kind of thing um and that's why sort of you know the, the score for ben-hur is my favorite because i think that uh, Roja did that in that film better than anybody else ever did but williams you know to his credit he he does an, 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 a, a splendid job of it here and it's not like it's the kind of thing that he was doing all the time in the 70s because the right. funny thing is if you look in look the, the, the same year in 1977 he also did the, this the soundtrack for uh, close encounters of the third kind mm-hmm. which has some very sort of uh you know dissonant atonal music in some spots that is very unlike what anybody was doing in hollywood in the golden age you know the sort of thing that he was doing you know with the, the theme from jaws is you know the you know, guys like max steiner would say what no you simpleton get out of here you know <laughs> and you know, even like and he was doing more sort of contemporary things as well earlier on i mean you know he did uh, you know back when he was known as johnny williams and he did the score for like you know in a movie called daddio with uh, dick contino that <laughs> the fans of mystery science theater 3000 will remember that movie but you know he did stuff like that and then there was a movie with uh, with natalie wood uh, that there was he was 
Penelope, I believe it was called. They were, she was some kind of like con artist or, or you know, cat burglar or something like that. And it was you know, he could do stuff that was more sort of pop oriented and jazz oriented. And, you know, given the opportunity, he can do that stuff again. It's not like he doesn't know how. But my point is that he wasn't doing that kind of classic Hollywood score like he did for Star Wars. So, and I think that's why, you know, one of the reasons why he won the Oscar for it is because people realize that, you know, he's capable of doing a lot of other things, but then he had to do this for this film. This film needed that for audiences then and maybe even now to sort of have something to hang on to. Well, actually, probably definitely audiences then more than now, because now Star Wars is such a, an ingrained part of, Amer- of, of yeah. our, our culture. We know all about it. We know who the bad guys are. We know who the good guys are. We know what the force is. But back then, it was all very new and unique and interesting. And, you know, when you have, a, you know, like the force theme that comes up, then you, you know this, this is something important, because the music is telling you it's something important. Yeah. You know? Uh, so the, the score like this, is, it was very unusual for its time. And as a result of that, then people, you know, filmmakers then started wanting to do more of that. Mm-hmm. And so then we got more of that for a while. And now, you know, the sort of the tide goes in and the tide goes out. And so now that we are having, you know, feeling, hearing more different kinds of scores, people are, are making different uh, progressions and following different paths. And we've seen it in this, this top 50. You've seen the, the, the kind of score that Mika Levy did with uh, Under the Skin is really remarkable. The stuff that, that Johnny Greenwood did, uh, not just in uh, There Will Be Blood, but in all the films that he's done so far with Paul Thomas Anderson, it's been a really fantastic and unique collaboration. But it's not what you would call sort of traditional uh, film scores. But it's something that people are always going to somebody somewhere is always going to return to that style at one time or another because a film is just going to need it. But that sort of thing that had fallen out of favor by 1977 and had sort of been thought as old hat, uh, he breathed new life into it. And for that alone, I think you have to give the guy a lot of credit, but also, like I said, for him to try something that he really hadn't done before to to do that kind of willfully old fashioned kind of score. I think you have to give him a lot of credit for that as well. And he does it so confidently. Uh, David, you were talking about this with psycho that, and okay. So how old were you when you saw it West nine, nine, what fascinates me is there was a time when the star wars theme if nothing else the star wars theme did not exist that seems strange it feels like it always existed (laughs) um and it and the way it starts you know it just it's a burst of music you know it doesn't fade in it's not jaws it is it announces itself yes. immediately. This is adventure time. Yeah. <laughs> and just, and I'm trying to think, you know, like David, like what you were saying with cycle, I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of someone seeing this thing and just long ago, uh, complete silence long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then boom. And just trying to think like, if I was a, if I was a kid and that, and I saw that, like I would probably, start swearing even if i'd never done it before <laughs> i'd be like holy shit what the fuck is this like just completely freaking out because from the word go the world is being established and the mood is being established from the word go and it's just like it's so exciting and so marvelous it's like i can't imagine i mean when you saw it i'm sure you flipped out right oh yeah 
Because, and again, see, up until then, you know, what were we getting? Uh, let's see. Escape to Witch Mountain. Uh, <laughs> the, the Shaggy DA. You know, just, just rest, in peace, rest in peace, Dean Jones. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, movies like that. And uh, certainly there were, and of course, at the same time, there were movies that I was seeing on television because, you know, I would be watching, you know, like old Westerns with my father on Saturday mornings and stuff like that. And, and so that's where I had that familiarity with that, that kind of music that, and Ben Hur, because my father mm-hmm. had like, there were, there were a total of three soundtrack LPs that were released for Ben Hur. <laughs> Cause that's how much music there was. My father had two of them. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was familiar with that kind of music, but I was, I had never actually gone into a movie theater and heard that kind of music in six track Dolby stereo before. Nah. You know, I just heard it on an old record in my father's den. Uh, and I'd seen it, you know, on TV, you know, an old black and white TV with, you know, one tinny little mono speaker. So I was familiar with the form. But really to be hit in the face with that kind of music in the theater, the theatrical experience, it was just unparalleled. And it was like the difference between, you know, like black and white in color in a way, or going yeah. from, you know, from like 133 to, to Cinemascope. It was, just, it was just a vast difference. And not only that, but to hear that music in the context of what you were seeing. Yeah. It was just so unique and original to me. Because again, also, you know... Uh, Prior to that, you know, the movies that, you know, like science fiction movies you would have seen then, uh, maybe like, you know, the Andromeda Strain, which had a sort of a weird uh, atonal electronic score, uh, or even uh, uh, Forbidden Planet, which also had a very mm-hmm. weird yeah. uh, electronic score. Uh, and thing, things like that, you were sort of accustomed to. Uh, and even like listening to, like I mentioned before, like the Bernard Herrmann score for The Day the Earth Stood Still, it's an orchestral score, but it's also got a really weird, unique thing going on there because he's employing two theremins. Right. So, and also Bernard Herrmann doesn't do classic Hollywood type scores. He does, he's very much he got his own sound. He, you know, you listen to his work and it's very distinctive from anybody else's. So... To, to have that kind of music coming out of a movie that's filled with, you know, spaceships and robots and, and, and weird furry things and stuff like that, it was just really remarkable. Do you, the, the, one of the things that I think of when I think of the, uh, the Star Wars theme, but also the music in general, is it almost feels like, like it emerged fully formed. That like, I can't imagine any one instrument playing something. It just feels like it's complete. It's completely well complete. You know that uh, that it can't be broken down to. Oh, here's some horns and here's some strings. It's just, no, 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 no. It's the Star Wars theme. <laughs> there are no horns and strings. There's Star Wars. That's all there is. And like, it, it feels. I know it's weird to say it, but like that's. And maybe because of, you know, just the the age that I was when I saw it. And like that to me was like the epitome of the best movie music. And so when I say like it feels like it has always existed and I feel it and I say it feels like it couldn't have possibly been created. It's literally as if God were music. It would sound <laughs> he would sound like the Star Wars theme. Well, that's, that's part of the alchemy of music. That's part of what makes it so endlessly fascinating uh, for me, at least, uh, and particularly orchestral film music, because yeah, it all starts with a guy, usually a guy at a piano. Mm-hmm. And then you know, and he gets an idea and he writes it down, and then somehow that has to be expanded upon, so that everybody in the orchestra uh, that has something to do, 
basically, you know, everybody that you've employed, assuming you're employing a whole orchestra, which in case in this case he did. Uh, and it's it's just so remarkable to me that that enormous sound with 120 people playing all this music could come out of just one guy sitting at a piano. Yeah. But um, and actually, that's one of the things in an earlier episode when I was here. I played something for everybody, which was uh, a piece of music from from Eric Wolfgang Korngold, the, the opening theme from the film that he did in 1942 called King's Row. <laughs> and that theme was actually part of a, the inspiration for the, the Star Wars theme. But also that particular version that I played, which was only available on a vinyl LP that I have, it was a recording where they had a home recording of Korngold playing the theme on the piano. And then from that, they faded into the full orchestral version. So you could get the idea of exactly how it just starts off with a guy with two hands and an instrument going off. And, and, and next thing you know, there's a whole orchestra playing this thing that started with that guy. Uh, and I brought that in specifically because I wanted to, to share that with everybody. And because it's just, like I said, it seems so remarkable that, all this incredible wall of sound could just come out of a person in front of an instrument. And th- th- that's, that's the same thing that holds true with star Wars. It was just John Williams sitting at a piano and somehow it just became this. And you don't think about it. You don't think of him just sitting at the piano going, Oh yeah. Jesus Christ, what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> but he did that. And this is what he came up with. And you know, that, that's why we hold this up as the best because it's inconceivable. You listen to that yeah. music and just to think that it came out of one guy. Yeah. It just, well, it seems like it should have come out of like four or five guys at least. <laughs> yeah. I am going to stop you there because I think that's the best way to end not only the Star sure. Wars discussion, but the entire episode that, yeah, yeah. Uh, was a great summation of why uh, these are all important and why we did this and why we like these so much. So uh, Wes, thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, and uh, we are at battleshipretention.com. That's where you can find this list. It's where you can find all of the uh, movie reviews, um, all of the little blurbs that you guys and our other contributors wrote for these, uh, all the other podcasts in the BP fleet. Everything can be found at BattleshipPretension.com, as can our sponsors, who didn't get a mention this week. But uh, you can find our sponsors at BattleshipPretension.com. Indeed. You can, um, let's see, you can, if you want to, you can email us at David at BattleshipPretension.com or Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. You can and should follow Tyler on Twitter at TylerPretension. Mm -hmm. Now, You've got another podcast. Uh, we've got two other podcasts. Yes. But we're recording well in advance. So Yeah. So with more than one lesson, I don't know what will be available. Yeah. But I will say that uh, worth playing for. So this will be going up on the 20th. So in a couple of days, the season, the Survivor okay. season starts. And so we'll be uh, starting the, the show uh, in, our, in, in earnest. Okay. My other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This. Again, uh, because we're in advance, I don't know when this is going up. Or I don't know what uh, we're talking about the week this is going up. But check out Hey, Watch This. You can find it at BattleshipPretension.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Uh, West, where can people find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony and... You know, like I said, uh, there was some stuff on this list that I thought should have been there and you guys didn't pick it. And I think maybe some of you need a talking to in that regard, which is why <laughs> I am going to return to podcasting. Wow. Uh, <laughs> this is a surprise. Yeah, I didn't know. Yes, this. We, this is a surprise. What's, to us. I didn't know what, I was going to announce it here, but yeah, what's all this? Just, then? Um, I'm going to start a, a, a film music podcast, or at least oh. predominantly film music podcast. I 
I'm hoping to get it going uh, early in 2016, if not sooner. Oh, boy. Oh, but, I can't uh, wait. So this is a thing. Early that, 2016, if not sooner, cannot come soon <laughs> enough. Indeed. So this is a thing that I'm going to do. So uh, like I said, follow me, uh, Dr. West Anthony, on Twitter, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know as soon as that's up and rolling. Very oh, exciting. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks for being here, West. Exclusive. Um, yeah. Uh, we should have been doing a little like, drops over that. Yeah. Um, and uh, thank you at home for voting and Indeed. for listening. Yeah. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.